Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the November 3rd, 2022 planning board meeting. Um, we are a new board uh, appointed by the county council and sworn in last Thursday. Um, they appointed us in a temporary acting capacity. Uh, we still have all of the authorities and prerogatives of, of the planning board. Uh, we will be replaced by permanent members as the new council gets sworn in. They go through the procedures for uh, appointment and, and we get replaced. We serve until replaced. Um, we have been uh, undergoing some training, uh, as you might imagine, since we haven't been in these chairs uh, for a while. So we had some orientation to uh, uh, by county and personnel issues uh, on Monday. We had a little bit of uh, ground rules on how we uh, uh, go through public meetings uh, this morning, and we'll have more. We'll, we'll have uh, an open session on, on Monday, uh, but we are in training. We'll still have to uh, do the required uh, commissioner's training from the state, uh, but we're prepared and ready to go through that. My name is uh, Jeff Zients. I'm acting chair. With me today is Amy Presley on uh, Teams. I keep on using Zoom because that's what we use at council. Um, uh, she is vice chair and with us remotely. Uh, Cherie Branson uh, is the other uh, commissioner. We're called commissioners, of course, because as planning board members, we're on the Park and Planning Commission. Uh, Ms. Commissioner David Hill on, uh, on my right, and Robert, Roberto Panera is absent. He has a family emergency. He'll, he'll be with us when we can. I, I'd like to turn it over first to Amy. Uh, pres Ms. Uh, excuse me. I have to get used to the formality of, of, of uh, chair. Uh, uh, Commissioner uh, Presley to... Uh, introduce herself and then we'll go th to the other commissioners for them to introduce themselves. Amy? Hello everyone. Uh, hopefully you can see me and everything sounds fine. First of all, I just want to say what an honor it is to be serving. Even though this is a short-term capacity, uh, my term actually is up in four months because I've replaced someone whose term was ending in February. Um, but for those of you who do know me, hello, and I'm glad to be back. And for those who don't know me, I actually served eight years on the planning board between the years of 2008 and 2016. And it's just a joy to be back. Uh, I truly admire this agency, all the work that you all do, uh, both sides. So it's really an honor to be here. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Ms. Commissioner Branson. First thing to do is figure out how the mics work. Good morning. Uh, my name is Cherie Branson. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be uh, serving the county again in the capacity of a commissioner. You all may remember at one point I was an interim council member. Um, so I think I'm going to nickname myself Interim Branson. That's okay. <laughs> Um, but before I was interim Branson, um, I actually served uh, over 20 years um, at uh, the U.S. Congress. 
Uh, I retired as a uh, chief counsel for oversight. Um, and after I served on the council, I served this county for three years as the director of procurement. Um, so my uh, career is completely unexplainable, totally eclectic, and it means I know a whole lot of trivia. Um, so um, again, I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure to, and an honor to serve with you all. And I look forward to the next few months. Thank you. Commissioner Hill. Yes, hello, I'm David Hill. Um, I have been a 35 year resident in the county. Uh, also had a period of time when I was a child in Silver Spring, so no, no way around. Uh, my background uh, that qualified me here has to do with serving for 20 years in the municipality of the city of Rockville. And uh, I think I am a little bit of a newcomer of the people sitting here to county operations and beg your indulgence to, to get, uh, get my feet under me. But I, I commented that I would serve running, hitting the ground running, and I will uh, try to do that as well. I just turned my mic off. Okay. Um, we are going to go through the agenda now if, if staff is ready, I, I think. Um, uh, we uh, uh, first have a record plats as, as our first order of business. There are uh, three plats that, that are up for approval, uh, Cabin John, uh, Chevy Chase Terrace, and uh, Woodhaven. Um, uh, generally, these are uh, procedural matters to just to make sure that they're consistent with the subdivision preliminary plan, which staff has done. And does staff have any uh, comments they want to make? No, seeing none. Uh, I'll entertain a motion to approve. Mr. Chair, I just have one comment to ask sure. uh, for staff a concurrence on, which taking the, the two residential uh, plats that we have here, um, my interpretation ex explanation to the public is that this is not a re-manipulation of the properties that I can tell. It is taking the historic vestige of the lot lines and um, lining those up with what I think anyone standing on the street would understand what is a residential property. Um, and I just uh, would like staff's concurrence that that's a fair interpretation. Good morning. For the record, Stephen Smith with the IRC division. I have Jay Beatty alongside also of the IRC division. And for the two residential ones, those are what we would call minor subdivisions, so they do not have a preliminary plan associated with them. And yes, in most cases, it would look like a consolidation of two lots or consolidation of a lot and a part of lot, which has probably been under common ownership for, it varies, but it can be all the way back to the you know, 1940s or something like that. Or in, in a case of two recorded lots, somebody could have just acquired them separately and are consolidating them now. So yeah, you are correct in, in seeing that there's really no change to the physical, what you would see if you're driving by. Thank you. Mr. Chair, I'll move that we approve plats number 220-220-800, uh, 220-230-0020, and 2023-0320, um, which are on the agenda as the subject properties, and move that we approve them all at once. 
Do I hear a second? I'll second that. Thank you. The, the uh, motion for approval ha has been uh, made. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 Excuse me, I should vote last. Um, the ayes have it. Uh, they're approved. Are we ready to proceed? Yes. Yes. All right, we're ready to move on to item three, regulatory extension requests. Um, uh, there are a number of these uh, for which I don't see any uh, one signed up to testify. These are generally a regulatory matter that goes by basis of a request by the applicant to extend the statutory deadlines. Um, uh, I'll entertain a motion either individually or for all of them. And we don't have to read the numbers if you just say the name of the, uh, of the uh, case. Mr. Chair, I'd like to uh, move approval of all of the extensions, including the Ray's Adventure, 2113 East Jefferson, the All Souls Cemetery, uh, I hope I pronounced this correctly, Shivasharan Administrative Subdivision Plan, the Rock Spring Center, and I move approval of all of those. Do I hear a second? Second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Okay. It's so approved. Unanimous. Thank you. If you wonder why I'm waiting, uh, all of these are separate Zoom. Uh, <laughs> the item four is a roundtable discussion by the Parks Director. Um, uh, Mr. Chair, did we skip uh, item 1A for adoption of resolutions? We have no resolutions to adopt today. We will have resolutions next week. Okay. Um, Mr. Riley. Uh, good morning, Planning Board. Uh, as a 37-year uh, veteran of the agency, I have the privilege and honor to uh, welcome you to, on behalf of the Parks Department to the uh, Park and Planning Commission. I'm Mike Riley, the uh, Parks Director. Uh, the next three items on your slate are parks items, and I'm going to begin with my director's report. Uh, every week, the uh, planning director and the parks director trade off uh, briefing the board on issues that are of, uh, of uh, interest or priorities that we feel the board should need to know. So today was my turn, and I'm going to use that to just give you a very high-level overview of the parks department. I do have some slides, so if you could... Uh, Get my screen up, please. Uh, I do have a PowerPoint presentation up. Great. So this is what we call our Green Tree Report. There's a lot of numbers here. I don't expect you to remember any of this, but the, the message is we are a very large and diverse park system in many ways. Uh, 420 individual parks, 37,000 acres of parkland under the jurisdiction of MNCPPC in Montgomery County. 
and uh, that's about 11% of uh, Montgomery County's uh, land area. If you look at some of the big numbers, uh, athletic fields, 338, uh, outdoor tennis courts, 299, you'll see that it is a pretty vast system that we, uh, we maintain. And uh, while the largest percentage of our workers in the parks department are park maintenance workers that work uh, in the maintenance depots, we have a wide variety of staff that do different things like trades. We, we have a trades group that can operate as a general contractor and build pretty much anything. We have aquatic biologists, we have a police force, arborists, we manage the county's white-tailed deer program. Uh, we have data analysts, historic and cultural resources staff. That's just a smattering to give you an idea that we do a lot of different things in the parks department and have experts, subject matter experts in many different uh, arenas. Uh, this org chart, again, this is material I'm, ha I'm going to provide you uh, in uh, binders. And uh, I don't want to uh, spend a lot of time on this other than to introduce my two deputies. Uh, we divide the uh, organization into what we call administration and operations. Uh, very simplistically, the administration side, most of those staff work in this building. They're office workers who work in the headquarters who do human resources, public affairs, capital development, planning, IT, those types of things. They're under Deputy Director Mitty Figueredo, who couldn't be with us this morning due to a prior conflict. And then we have the operations side, which I call the boots on the ground side. These are our park maintenance workers, trades, our enterprise facilities, arboriculture, uh, nature centers, and then our, our uh, park maintenance staff that is geographically divided between the north and the south, and they're headed up by Gary Burnett, who is with us today uh, in the audience. And uh, just wanted to introduce Gary, and I'll bring Mitty back next time. So you came at a good time if you're going to ask me the question, what is the future direction for the Parks Department? Because we just finished our long-range park recreation and open space plan. We do every five years. I'm going to hand you hard copies when I finish my report uh, that you can peruse at your leisure. It cites a lot of priorities, but three of the big ones are encouraging physical activity, facilitating social interaction, and protecting the environment, and uh, we really think that we've prepared the best plan ever, and I hope when you get a chance to peruse it, you uh, will agree that we're going in the right direction, and of course, I'll welcome your questions or your feedback on anything else that you think might be uh, missing. Uh, we just updated uh, the Wheaton Regional Park Master Plan. Um, it's, the park was acquired and developed in the 60s. It kind of needs a, a makeover. Uh, one of the big themes for the park is to improve pedestrian and bicycle access. It was developed with many different entrances for different parts of the park, and sometimes people get confused about moving between Brookside Gardens and the athletic complex and the train and the carousel, so we're going to try to improve uh, mobility both for uh, pedestrians and for uh, vehicles. Of course, updating uh, facilities. And then I do want to highlight one uh, feature we're extremely excited about is we plan to add a uh, world-class multi-generational action sports complex to the park that we believe will be a uh, regional attraction across the DMV. And one thing we're really proud of is that it, we're moving very fast from master plan 
to implementation. We, um, uh, as soon as the master plan was wrapping up, we actually got a two and a half million dollar grant from the state of Maryland for this project, and are going to be able to move at record speed from planning into design and ultimately implementation. Another huge priority for us that we've been at for about five or six years now is bringing more people into our parks for events. You can see the listing of the different themes of the events we have. The attendance has been uh, beyond my wildest dreams. It's not uncommon for us to get uh, 400 uh, people at one of the um, acoustics and, and ales events. And then for some of the events, we're in the thousands and I'm going to highlight a couple of these. But this is all about getting our community members in our parks uh, who have common interests, maybe from diverse backgrounds, to get to know and meet each other, have a little fun, have a little exercise. And we think this is a really important thing for us to be doing. This is just one event called the Color and Kite Festival. It's an Indian Heritage Festival. It's held annual at Black Hill Regional Park. Attendance this year was about 3,000 people. Uh, I did have an opportunity to address the crowd, and it was very, very exciting. This is Germantown Glory, the fire, annual fireworks show put on by our recreation department in uh, South Germantown Park. Numbers here average about 25,000 attendees. This is uh, uh, drone footage. And then just this, we got uh, the new chair to work right away. Uh, just this past weekend, we had him cutting the ribbon of our latest facility. It's called the Pit at the Farallon Bike Park. It is a, um, a bike skills park. It was an old gravel quarry that cyclists had used for years and years as an informal uh, bike park. We went in and put it about 40 different features and jumps and improved the trail, tread, built a parking lot, and uh, cut the ribbon uh, just this last Saturday. And uh, this is, you know, when I started out talking about the goals of pros being phys encouraging physical activity. Uh, and, and social gathering, this really fits the bill. This is not a sport for everybody, but we try to provide something out in the park system for everybody's interest. Another program we did, uh, I have to give a shout out to our Montgomery Parks Foundation. They uh, provided us money to buy bikes, and we had a two-week program this summer where we brought uh, kids out to do trail maintenance and to learn how to ride a mountain bike. And at the end of the program, they were rewarded with a mountain bike. We targeted uh, uh, schools uh, and communities of color to get uh, uh, racial uh, diversity in our, our attendees. They all spoke at the graduation. And uh, it, it was very impressive that uh, two, two themes came out, which was one, they had no idea that our park system had these trails, and two, uh, we really love the sport of mountain biking, and we're going to tell our friends that it's something really good to get into. So the ambassador part was the, the goal, and we, we really did seem to achieve uh, considerable success. Another huge priority is athletic fields. As I said, there's about 330 in the parks. We also maintain another 400 plus or minus at the elementary and public schools, and we've been methodically going through the system and renovate them. We've built up a lot of expertise and resources in how to build a sustainable athletic field and then, uh, of course, maintain it in a, a better condition. And we're having tremendous success in the parks. And then this is a school field. And you see a quote we got from the principal of Highland Elementary School that uh, 
unfortunately at our elementary schools for decades a lot of kids would play on dirt and rocks instead of grass and our goal is to have them uh, doing their PE and their after-school activities on grass and then have those fields and spaces available for community use and leagues in the evening and it's really been an effort that's allowed us to add a lot to the inventory. Mike, would you mind if I just, I want to go back. You're going so quickly and these things are so magnificent. I'm thrilled what you were doing with the kids with the bikes. That's fantastic. Was this the first year that you guys did this? It was the, the first uh, year and we, we considered it a pilot program because we just didn't know how it would go. Our, tra our natural surface trail crew uh, put a lot of work into uh, advertising and marketing the program and, and recruiting the kids. And once we got a few kids interested, it spread word of mouth. And uh, we are definitely going to continue and grow that program. Will it connect at all with the, the play it forward as far as people donating bikes? Or do you actually have a separate budget for bikes to help these kids? The, the, the budget for the bikes came from the Montgomery Parks Foundation, and we're going to be asking them to continue to support and grow that program. Great. Fantastic. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just think there's so many good things, and we have to at least we have to give accolades. So go ahead. Uh, thank you, Vice Chair Presley. I, I, I am intentionally going fast because I didn't want to take too much of your time on your first day, and I'm happy to come back and expound on any of these issues. Uh, I don't expect you to read this. Another initiative uh, I've had since I've been director is better management of the, this vast system by the use of data and analytics. All this tells you is that based on cell phone pings uh, and technology like Streetlight and uh, City Dash, that uh, between uh, March of 2020 uh, and today across the park system, we've seen an 80% increase in visitation which is uh, consistent with what we're seeing and experiencing with both use of the, of the facilities and the attendance at our events. Mr. Director, just a quick question about that. Do you think this is partly shaped by people coming out of doors again after COVID or is this growth of programs? I'm sure it's a component of both. I think it's, I think it's mostly about COVID. Okay. I think it's people appreciating the outdoor venues uh, during COVID and then once they learned uh, that, you know, walking and biking in our parks was enjoyable, they kept going. Okay, so this is a good motivation to get engaged out there coming it, it out of a health situation, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, project delivery, we um, uh, have a pretty robust capital program of renovating older parks and delivering new facilities. I won't uh, address um, uh, all of these. There's a couple I just want to highlight because it, it, uh, they uh, are exemplary of a theme we've had, it, which is to make sure that as the county grows uh, and that we have urban parks, accessible, walkable, vibrant urban parks in and near our population centers. Uh, the next item you're gonna hear today uh, from the Parks Department deals with that issue. But uh, towards the end or the right of the graph, you're gonna see Gene Lynch Urban Park on the bottom. That's gonna be a new urban park we're 99% complete with right next to the Silver Spring Transit Center that should open uh, shortly. And then the last one, South Silver Spring uh, uh, Urban Park, we just bought a property uh, down in uh, South Silver Spring uh, that we're going to in record time demolish a building and get a temporary interim urban park uh, in, in that area. And that came out of a plan we have called the Energized uh, 
public spaces uh, functional plan where it's a pretty complex tool where we analyze uh, uh, demand uh, versus supply of parks and it tells us where we have low levels of service and we need to uh, add service and, uh, and uh, South Silver Spring Park came out of that analysis and again we're moving as fast as we can between planning to actually having a park on the ground. Um, we have been put a lot of effort in over the years of working both with our federal and state elected officials to seek support for the parks beyond the tax base in Montgomery County. Uh, we've had a record uh, year with both state grants thanks to the uh, Montgomery County delegation of the Maryland uh, General Assembly and then working with our congressman. You see Congressman Trone here who has brought money in for South Germantown and Congressman Raskin who has brought money in for the Long Branch area. And uh, this is very helpful to be able to point out when we seek funding from our county council that we're beyond what they can provide us that competes with schools and transportation and libraries that we are seeking every, every way we can to get the resources we need to support our system. Mr. Riley, are you missing uh, the pit in that list of uh, legislative contributions? Wasn't Senator Lutke? I do seem to be missing. Senator Lutke got us $100,000 for the pit, and Fairland Recreational Park should be here, so I did leave one out. It's okay. Just the plug. But at the ribbon cutting, I did give the shout out. That's the important part. <laughs> uh, volunteers, and I'm almost done here. I'm winding down. Uh, we have a very robust volunteer program. We get volunteers that want to work for us around various themes that you can see here. Uh, some of the biggest ones are Brookside Gardens. Who wouldn't want a volunteer to work <laughs> at Brookside Gardens? We get a lot of people for environmental purposes, uh, signing up for our Weed Warriors program to try to tackle non-native invasive plants, which is quite a, a, a challenge across the system. And then our park and stream cleanups, a lot of students get SSL credits for participating in activities like that. But it's uh, we monetize it uh, to show the value if we had to do all this work ourselves, but that's not really the important message. It's that we have so many community members who care deeply about our parks that they give us their time and we're very appreciative of it. And then uh, one thing I forgot to do, I always forget to do this in this presentation, there were asterisks next to parks, uh, projects that are in equity focus areas. We have mapped out with our colleagues in the planning department geographical equity focus areas of Montgomery County uh, based on certain demographic data where we give extra priority to add uh, parks and programs. So in Long Branch, we have a system of eight parks that generally universally are older parks that have a lot of aging infrastructure and we're in the middle of a very intensive community outreach process in the Long Branch community to determine how to best improve those parks and what facilities people want to see. And uh, again, we have uh, already secured funding, uh, as I showed in the prior slide, to start some of this. So it's just a matter of figuring out what we want to do and get going with the design and the construction. Uh, program access, we've uh, got a very robust ADA program that's broken down into uh, facility access and program access. Our program access team 
did uh, a couple, uh, uh, an event and a, a program this year that I'm very impressed with. They had a uh, mural project at um, Wheaton Regional Park where a young man, uh, Justin Valenti, who's an artist on the autism spectrum, uh, designed the mural. And then we had community members come out and uh, paint it. Uh, you see, I think we have a quorum of our uh, county council in attendance at that event and uh, a lot of community members, but that was uh, a fun event that uh, I, uh, that I, I want to thank our program access team for pulling together. And they also came up with a walking program for people age 50 or better. That's the term they keep telling me to use, 50 or better. Uh, that is uh, a walking program in the parks that is prim prim primarily run now by uh, volunteers under the guidance of our staff, but that program is growing uh, as well. Uh, our enterprise fund, we have uh, both a division and a fund where we uh, run an array of our facilities with no tax supported assistance, either for the infrastructure or the staff. It's the facilities like the Wheaton and Cabin John ice rinks, the train and carousel at Wheaton, um, uh, some of the tennis bubbles. And uh, they did have a, quite a time managing the fund during the pandemic. As you can imagine, there were significant drops in revenue but they did everything they can to stem the bleeding and to cut expenses during that period. And I'm very impressed that we're coming out of it with uh, the fund very healthy uh, and uh, attendance now and revenue is back above pre-pandemic levels. But I just need to congratulate uh, Christy Turnbull who manages that division and fund for proactively guiding it through the uh, pandemic. That's fantastic. Mike, could I ask one quick question again? Sorry, you mentioned carousel and all my bells went off. Hey, uh, it, it, are things gonna move forward with the yeah. transfer of the carousel from Wheaton to it, um, the, the Kings Park? Yes, it, it is happening. There is a funded capital project in our CIP for su substantial development of the first phase of Ovid Hazen Wells Recreational Park that includes Wonderful. the movement of the carousel. I'm That's so, fantastic, thanks. I'm so pleased you asked that question at a time I could say yes, because for the last decade, <laughs> for the last decade, my answer has been no. <laughs> no, that's great, thank you. But that's it for me, thank you. Any other questions? Uh, we'll, we'll certainly hear more from the Parks Department uh, during our tenure, and uh, if, if we have specific things we'd like presented, I'm sure the staff would be willing to do that. Uh, it really is just a terrific program. And, and for the record, I did not take any of those jumps on the uh, mountain biking. <laughs> uh, and, they, and Mike, I just want to say, having been a while, so long away, you guys just do such a tremendous job. I'm so proud. I have a dog, and I took him to uh, one of the many parks the, uh, off of 355. And I have to tell you, after all this time, for the first time, I happened to park with him next to one of these units that's called Play It Forward. And I don't know if any of the other uh, commissioners know about this, but I had no idea that we're participating in that. Um, and, and in fact, I have several things, my husband's golf clubs and you know basketballs and baseball bats. But I think that's a fantastic program. It really is, uh, you know, it, it gets play equipment in the hands of people who will use it. It's, it's just terrific. Uh, okay, Are any, no other questions? All right, we'll move on. Thank you very much, uh, Director, Director Riley. Um, 
Let's see, we're on item five, and surprisingly, it's a CIP item for parks. Uh, it's a supplemental request, Bethesda Lots uh, 10 and 24. Are, are we ready? Oh. Uh, thank you. We're moving on to item five. It's a, a CIP supplemental request for Bethesda Lots uh, 10 and 24. After the staff presentation, there are two speakers on this item. So uh, if staff would like to proceed. Again, Mike Riley, Director of the Parks Department. I'm just going to make a brief introduction and then turn it over to staff to do a brief presentation on this item. Uh, this is a very, very exciting project from the Parks Department's perspective, as I said in my Parks Director's report, that delivering uh, vibrant, walkable urban parks in our population centers has been a top priority for us. Uh, this project is a great collaboration between the private sector, county government, the town of Chevy Chase, and Park and Planning to advance several key recommendations of the Bethesda Downtown Plan that was adopted by the uh, Council back in 2017. 
Uh, I do have representatives, or we do have representatives and guests here from those agencies and the audience who uh, I think some are gonna testify, but they're here in the event you have any questions that are best answered for them. Uh, from the private sector, we have McLean Quinn, the president and CEO of EYA, uh, Chuck Hathaway, the vi executive vice president of Bernstein Management Corporation, uh, Chris, uh, uh, I don't know if Chris Conklin, the director of DOT, is on virtually, uh, but we do have Joe Tamana of the parking lot district of DOT, and the mayor of the town of Chevy Chase, Barney Rush, is also uh, with us today. So I do want to welcome them in the event. Any questions are best answered by them. I do want to point out this, as the chair said, this is a CIP action. It's not a regulatory action at this point. This is basically the board agreeing to transmit a capital budget request uh, to the council. I do want to point out what is a, a very unusual and, and unique uh, anomaly here that uh, because we did not have a sitting board uh, at the time we needed to transmit this uh, supplemental in time for the current sitting council to hear it, uh, our request to the county executive did submit our PDF to the council so that it could get be introduced and get in the queue for this sitting council to uh, act on it before it, uh, the new council comes in, so act on it by the end of November. I, I just want to point out that that is, that is not the typical case. Typically, you as the planning board would approve the, a, a CIP item. It would then go to the executive and the council simultaneously, and the executive would then decide whether he wants to recommend approval or disapproval, and then the council would have the final say. In this case, the county executive has already indicated recommended approval, which I see as a, a positive thing. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, uh, Brenda Sandberg, who heads up our real estate office in the Parks Department, and Ron Peel, who is our relatively new uh, capital improvements budget coordinator. So I'll let them run through a brief presentation. Good morning. Thank you uh, for hearing us on this exciting project. As uh, Mike introduced it, again, Brenda Sandberg, Real Estate Management Supervisor within the Park Development Division. Um, I'll run through the slideshow here, and then Ron is here as well as the other folks Mike's introduced who can answer any questions. Um, again, this is a supplemental um, a special appropriation to the current fiscal year, so it's for FY23 as opposed to the next item, which is for FY24. To give you a little bit of background, because this is a, a more complicated or unusual PDF than what we normally do, go back to the 2017 Bethesda downtown plan. There's a whole set of recommendations in that plan that all converge on this location. Um, this is just south of the center of uh, Bethesda, right along Wisconsin Avenue between Willow Lane and Leland Street. The three key recommendations that are in play and that we're trying to implement here are the recommendation for a civic green at the Farm Women's Market Cooperative site, um, one of the major open spaces for really social gathering and other functions. There's a recommendation for an eastern greenway. You see the graphic on the right that shows the plan is to have a, a series of linked parks that can bring people together from the communities to the, to the east of downtown Bethesda, as well as all the growth and residents and, uh, and workers in downtown Bethesda. Um, there's also um, text that in the master plan that talks about the underground parking and how by uh, or the, the surface lot public parking and how by undergrounding that parking, it's freeing up some needed space for 
new housing, new commercial, and the public parks that are needed to help implement this vision for, the, for that. Um, just a quick slide to remind you, if you, you weren't aware, about the Historic Farmers Market. Um, it is on, on the Historic Preservation Master Plan and has been for a long time. Um, it's the only remaining purpose-built farmers market, women's market in Maryland. And again, it's a real potential to be a focal point for development, residence, and social activity in this southern stretch of Wisconsin Avenue. So what happened after 2017, um, the public agencies, especially the parking lot district and DOT, started working with a developer, um, the development group that had put um, 7121 Wisconsin Avenue under contract and had worked to uh, um, acquire the farm women's market site as well. Um, so this collaborative project, both public and private, um, was envisioned to meet multiple goals, and it went to the planning board for sketch plan approval. Um, the three goals that came out of that sketch plan, and you can see this is a graphic from the sketch plan, would be the revitalized farm women's market surrounding public space, a modern underground parking garage, two significant public parks. You can see a portion of Lot 24 is a park in this um, sketch, as well as all of Lot 10, as well as new housing and commercial development. So to, it's a complex structure, but the basics, so you understand what the structure of this public-private collaboration is, the first element is this approval of this funding for the public elements of the development project. So that's what's in front of you today. Um, then the county PLD will be selling Lot 24 to the developer. The developer will be doing the, getting their regulatory approvals from the planning board, so you will see regulatory items coming forward on this. Then Parks and the town of Chevy Chase are going to be contributing funds to support the development costs for actually building the parks on top of the parking garage on part of Lot 24 and on all of Lot 10. Um, and then the county, DOT, will be contributing some funds to this overall project to pay, help pay for the underground parking garage. Um, so after this public funding element is locked in and approved by the county council, then it will start negotiating probably eight to 12 different legal <laughs> development and funding agreements between all of the parties. We have, again, four parties, Town of Chevy Chase, the Commission, DOT, and the development entity. So it's, uh, and those agreements will establish milestones for making the payments into the development project when they need it for the work that needs to be done. And in, and in our agreements, we'll make sure the expectations for the design and quality of the parks is in those agreements as well. So the end result, the county will receive a deed for the park underground parking garage. It will be in a condominium regime, so they'll own their parking garage, same as in this building here. Um, the Parks Department will receive a deed for the portion of Lot 24 on top of the parking garage. That is our park. That will also be a condo unit. We will get ownership of the Lot 10 park in fee because there's no... Cons development construction going on in that. And then the developer will own um, the farm women's market site, the common open space around that. They'll own and manage that. And then there's significant residential and retail development. And again, this sketch is, this, this graphic is from the sketch plan. It may or may not reflect what the developers are working on now, but we thought it was illustrative to show what is going on here. 
Um, so the amendment, CIP amendment and special appropriation that are in front of you today for FY23 is 9.433 million. The uses of these funds are that 8.117 million will be the contribution to the developer for new parks. 716,000 will be a contribution to the developer for undergrounding some of the utilities adjacent to the park spaces, and about 600,000 is allocated for park staff chargebacks for all the coordination and design reviews and work that needs to be done on our part. The funding sources, two and a half million um, is being contributed by parks from the Bethesda Park Impact Payment Fund. Um, two and a half million has come in a state grant to the commission specifically for this project. And then a total of 4.433 million is coming from the town of Chevy Chase. And their funds are split into a million dollar state grant, um, about 2.717 million contribution toward the parks, and the 716,000 toward the utilities undergrounding is also town of Chevy Chase funds. Um, you will note, and it was in the uh, memo, that we are not having to reduce the uh, Bethesda Park Impact Payment appropriation in the actual Bethesda PIP PDF because enough new site plans have been approved with required PIPs that we need all the appropriation that's in that existing one as well over the coming years. So there was no reason to do any tweaks to that PDF as part of this action. So to reiterate what Mike said, the County Council has already introduced um, both the county, park, and the DOT CIP amendments, so they are publicly um, issued. Today is the third, where we're asking the planning board to sign on to the parks PDF um, proposal in front of you. November 15th is when the county council will hold their public hearing on both of the, count the county, DOT, and the parks PDF. November 28th, there will be a joint T&E and Fed Committee work session to work through the PDFs, and November 29th, the County Council will take action. So what we're asking for you today is to approve these budget items for the public funding element for delivery of the two public parks on the overall farm women's market, Lot 24 and Lot 10 redevelopment project. Thank you, Ms. Sandberg. Are there any preliminary questions before we hear from, speaker, from uh, public testimony? Yes, I have a couple things. Um, thank you. So I just want to be real clear. The um, briefing material I have says this CIP amendment and special appropriation requests an additional $2.5 million in Bethesda Park impact payments. I thought I just heard you say no additional. No additional PIP payments, is that? No, what okay. I was saying, there is a separate PDF in the overall CIP, and uh -huh. you should see it in the packet that Ron will be presenting to you and talking about the, um, the overall <clears throat> CIP, which is where we've been funneling all the actual checks that come in for, from developers are deposited into the account, and we have an appropriation level in that PDF that allows us to spend that money. Um, because the planning board has approved enough site plans that we expect over the next year or two that a lot more checks are going to be coming in. We did not, because we're adding 2.5 million in appropriation, permission to spend that money in this PDF, we don't need to reduce the appropriation level in that one because we know enough money's coming in to, to pay for that. So okay. I was just saying there's no reason to amend that master Bethesda PDF 
Okay, that helps windows. clear it up because so. the sentence was not exactly clear to me anyway. <laughs> um, second thing. Um, um, okay, so I need to know through what mechanism you all generally um, provide oversight for situations such as this where you're giving, uh, where you're allocating money to a developer, to an applicant, um, and I'm referring to this, um, uh, I guess it's $9.4 million. Mm -hmm. um, so if you could just briefly give us a rundown of, you know, how, how those payments are, are, are calculated, what sort of oversight methods you do to make sure that, you know, the money that's being requested is money that should be, <laughs> that should be spent, et cetera. Um, the, uh, there's a couple of different methods. Um, I, I think one of the primary ones is, as we said, this is the funding mechanism. This funding is based on the, the developer's initial, you know, detailed cost estimates of what it's actually going to cost to build the, the, the parks above and beyond sort of the base level of their construction costs for their entire project. Um, and that is how we came up with the 8.117 million that is to be contributed to build the parks. Um, that is where that came from. If you see that the funds, the estimated pay, um, expenditures are spread out over the six years, again, we base that on the, the current developer's spreadsheet saying they think they anticipate this is when those funds will be needed. We will be doing, as I mentioned, <clears throat> several legal agreements. Um, a primary legal agreement will be a development agreement with the um, with with the uh, with the developer it will lay out how and when we will be paying them money and actually issuing checks what are the what are the milestones that will do that what needs to be met and parks expectations for for overall how the park will be designed and built in addition to that one of our standard things is we do a, whenever any developer is building a park that is then going to be handed over to the parks department, we have a park construction permit process. And that is where we've actually, we actually have our, our own engineers and designers reviewing in detail the designs of what's actually being built. So we are assured that when a park is built and handed over to us, and again, this is the same as we do for any developer-built park, um, that it's, it's a park that we can manage and maintain and we know it's been built to the right standard and will meet our needs. Um, we, uh, so all of those legal details that here's the oversight, here's, here's the triggering milestones, this is what will trigger the next check being actually sent out. Um, that's all, that's what we'll spend, our lawyers will spend the next two, three, four months working on getting all of those put together. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, I just have one quick question. We've got um, in our materials a different, I, I believe this is a different CIP request from the county executive. I'm looking at his uh, October 21st memo, and the special appropriation for this one is 2355, as a, I think we're dealing with 2352. Um, but it's, one, it's $1, 1468000 for design at the uh, women's market. And can you just 
elaborate on the relationship of these two things? Correct. We do have, um, as Mike said, we do have um, Joe Stamana from the parking lot district here. We thought it would be illustrative for the board to see the entire packet that the county executive sent to the county council, which included both our parks PDF and the county DOT's PDF for their garage. So if you have specific questions about that, they, they are here and can come up and answer questions about that. We just thought it was illustrative, so you saw that this is the whole package. Okay. I just wanted to illuminate the difference in that and make sure that I understood that this was not what we were being asked to Correct. You were not being on. asked to, to comment on that, just on the parks. Thank you. Okay. No further questions. Uh, there are two speakers. One is uh, Mayor Rush, if he'd like to come up and speak, from um, Town of Chevy Chase. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's an honor to be here, and uh, thank you all for your service. Uh, coming in at short notice, but doing such important work on behalf of Montgomery County and all of its residents. Um, I just want to touch very briefly on the really extraordinary significance of the creation of these parks. Uh, the vision for this goes back six years to the time that this uh, commission committed, considered the Bethesda downtown plan. And the surrounding communities all agreed with the very vast increase in density that would arise from this plan, indeed, has successfully arisen. It's been dramatic how much change has occurred in downtown Bethesda. But with that agreement, from the point of view of the residents, not just from the town, but all the surrounding communities, came a really fierce view that we needed to have more urban park space. That was going to be really incumbent, and the plan needed to deliver that. To give you some feeling of perspective of this, since the time of that plan's approval, 2,600 housing units have been built, are under construction, or have been improved in sketch plan. That is a huge increase. There's still empty lots. Oh, by the way, that's only on Wisconsin between Old Georgetown uh, and going down to Bradley. That doesn't include all the other construction, only that stretch, well within easy walking distance of these parks. That doesn't include all the existing buildings that are already there. Uh, and by way of perspective, there are just over 1,000 homes in the town of Chevy Chase. So the plan is working really well in terms of bringing about the additional density, but it does mean these parks have tremendous importance. Uh, the, the vision is certainly there, and we are very excited uh, that we're finally reaching the point with what we hope will be approval of this commission and of the county council to bring complete the financing plan. The town of Chevy Chase has been very involved in this, and I am very pleased to be able to represent today our very firm commitment to the development of these parks. We've always been clear these parks are in the interests of the town. That's obvious. They're right adjacent to the town. But I think we can all understand that it's unusual for a municipality to offer substantial sums, and in our case, $4.5 million from our own coffers, to support a project that is not in our town uh, jurisdiction. Uh, the, but I also want to be clear that as we, uh, certainly it's to our interest to have these parks, the greatest value goes to the residents of Bethesda, unincorporated residents of Montgomery County, uh, where certainly the vast majority of the people using these parks will be uh, from, from, from outside of the town. So it's, a, uh, it's really a very exciting time. I also want to stress the nature that this is a partnership. Uh, there are four parties to this, um, the, the Parks Department, the county itself, 
uh, the town of Chevy Chase, and the developers. And I certainly want to uh, give my thanks to all three other parties uh, who have stepped up and done so much to bring about this partnership. Uh, it has permitted the county as a whole, in terms of general obligation bonds, to be putting in only about a third of the amount of money that's required for these parks. And if you include the other 12 million that's associated with the redevelopment of the farm women's market deposit itself, those geo bonds constitute only 25% of the total cost of, the, of this project. But with that sharing of responsibility comes an obligation for all parties to treat each other as full partners. And that's something that'll be important to represent as we go forward. Um, and on, as a matter of an example of that partnership, I can already attest to this, uh, our town manager, Todd Hoffman, has already been in touch with the state to find out just what it takes for us to get the money that has been appropriated. We received a half million in the FY23 from the state, and we have pre-authorized, not yet been appropriated, only pre-authorized, the other half million that will come in FY24, we believe. We are not finding this an easy process. We'll be looking forward, Mike, to working with you and your department to figure out how, in fact, we can navigate the state's bureaucracy uh, to make sure that we can get the money that we want to see go into this project. Um, finally, I'd just like to say quickly uh, uh, some thanks. Um, the, the vision of this goes back six years to the master plan that was approved by the uh, Planning uh, Commission, by, by, the, by, the, by the Planning Board. And I think some of the innovations that were brought about by the uh, Planning Board at that time under Chairman Anderson were really important, particularly the creation of the Park, the park Impact Payment. Uh, not only the two and a half million that's looked at today, but also associated with the core uh, development of the farm women's market plaza. There's another three million, but like five and a half million dollars uh, for this project is arising from that very innovative step that was taken in that master plan. And obviously the commitment to create these two urban parks themselves are key. Uh, one thing I've certainly learned from working on this for six years is how important it is that whatever vision you have, you'd better get it into a master plan or it doesn't count. So the fact that these parks are in that master plan uh, is really welcome and really appreciate that vision. Uh, also want to thank uh, the partners working with EYA and Bernstein Management Company, with the Parks Department, Mike and Mitty, uh, with uh, the county, with, with Chris Conklin, with Joe's Tamama. Uh, these are just crucial individuals who've worked so hard to try to get us to where we are today. Uh, and also want to thank uh, County Executive Mark Elrich, who was very helpful to us in the communities to ensure that what you saw in the sketch plan, which really represented a development that includes two very significant parks, uh, remained in fact what actually was developed and what we see, see here. Uh, so it's a very critical role. So with that, looking forward, uh, we are very excited about getting to this point, and hopefully to the 29th of November when the financial plan can be complete. Then to working with everybody on all the documents, Brenda was exactly right, there's a lot to be done. Uh, and finally, to the further work in the site plan, the charrette process to put together the amenities, uh, and ultimately the, the construction. Uh, I suspect we're only about halfway through. We started six years ago, and if I look and understand the timeline, we have five years or more to go. But uh, I think it'll be a very exciting addition and something which will mean enormous amount uh, to future generations living in the Bethesda area. So thank you very much. Thank you for your testimony. We have one other speaker, unless he wants us to approve this without him speaking. Um, uh, Mr. Quinn from uh, EYA, who's had a lot to do with this uh, project.
Sorry. Thank you. Uh, this is a huge milestone um, for everyone who's represented here and, and clearly for people who are uh, not in the room with us today. So my name is McLean with EYA. Um, our organization's had the luxury and privilege of being a partner for the county on many projects uh, with the Department of General Services, with HOC. Um, but this one is, uh, as you probably got a sense, the most complex public-private partnership we have tackled in Montgomery County. Uh, and so um, uh, on behalf of Bob Youngentob, uh, my partner and founder of EYA, Chuck Hathaway, who's here from Bernstein Management, we just are incredibly grateful and excited to be at this juncture for this project, which has been in the works for six years now and has taken tremendous vision, patience, uh, focus, uh, and commitment from so many parties. And we are thrilled to have a chance to implement the shared vision for a truly unique spectacular urban park and partnership in Bethesda. Um, the lessons from COVID that, that um, Director Riley talked about uh, with an 80% uptick in park utilization over the last several years, uh, I think is just a demonstration of how important these civic spaces become uh, for uh, not just recreation, but for social engagement, uh, uh, for social cohesion, and for having a place for communities, uh, diverse communities to come together and I think we are just in incredibly excited to be part of that uh, and to help realize this vision. So uh, we look forward to being back in front of you, being back in front of the Historic Preservation Commission, uh, continuing our partnership with the council, who I don't know that they were mentioned yet, but you know, another important partner, uh, uh, in front of the council, in front of the county executive, and all of the stakeholders uh, who've come together to make this possible. Thank you very much. Uh to no further questions, I'll entertain a motion. Nobody's going to move. No, I'm just getting ready, Mr. Chair. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chair, I move, I, I move that we approve uh, the um, CIP action in front of us. Um, I'm searching for a number right now, but uh, you don't I need it. Supp uh, CIP supplemental Bethesda lots 10 and 24. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's uh, P87302. <laughs> um, I move that we approve this as submitted. A second that. Second. Thank you. We have, we have, two se we have a second and a third. Um, all those uh, in favor say aye. 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 Okay, it's unanimous. Thank you very much. Can I make a brief like statement, Mr. Chair? Um, Excellent. I really project. admire this activity. Um, it is very hard to retrofit parks and urban spaces. And the creativity being presented here between multiple partners, I also like the fact that this park space is a multi-use space and the fact that we're undergrounding a necessary uh, part of the urban scape and then creating this park space above it. I think that's spectacular. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for your patience on getting a board up here. <laughs> <laughs>
Welcome back to the uh, November 3rd session of the Montgomery County Planning Board. We are on item 6, uh, uh, the FY24 uh, CIP and FY23-28 Capital Improvements Program. Uh, this is a public hearing, although we have no speakers. I'll, I'll, we'll, I'll look uh, to the staff for the presentation. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, and welcome. Uh, my name is Andy Frank. I head up the Park Development Division. And we come to you guys uh, every fall uh, to talk about our CIP, uh, to begin the process of uh, the CIP process uh, every year um, that ultimately uh, uh, ends up with the county uh, council adoption sometime in May. Um, we do this every year, but to clarify, we have a six-year CIP. So we are in what's known as an off year, um, but we still need to bring, uh, bring the, uh, the CIP to you. Um, we have transmitted the updated uh, CIP PDFs to the County Council under uh, Mike's uh, signature, uh, but we are here to, this morning to uh, receive approval and adoption of that same CIP uh, update. So uh, I'm gonna ask uh, Ron Peel, who's our CIP manager, to run through uh, the presentation, explain exactly where we are and where we're going. Thank you, Andy. And uh, for the record, good morning, uh, Mr. Chair and members of the board. Again, my name is Ron Peel. I'm the new Capital Program Manager for Montgomery Parks. And uh, today, I'd like to uh, present to you the FY23 through 28 biennial CIP and the FY24 capital budget. But I'd first like to take a minute to differentiate the CIP, the capital budget, and the biennial CIP before I proceed further. The CIP is essentially a six-year or multi-year program of expenditures and it was and is adopted every even number year. Uh, this CIP totals, this FY23 through 28 CIP totals $275 million. And as Andy said, was previously adopted by the County Council in May of 2022. The capital budget, on the other hand, is the actual authorization to spend funds for the next fiscal year and is adopted every odd number year uh, of the biennial CIP. For this FY24, the, uh, which starts July 1, 2023, the total of the capital budget for FY24 is $39 million. This slide is just an illustration of how the fund sources are distributed uh, that support our capital program and the major program areas uh, where the funding goes into. But as you can see, two points of note, that about half of our capital program comes from uh, GL bonds and program open space. That's about 50% of our funding sources. Uh, programmatically, about two-thirds of our program entails renovation and maintenance of our facilities. And the other one-third is distributed between park facilities and acquisition activities. Again, this six-year program is roughly $275 million. 
The biennial CIP uh, is really our opportunity to update the board on any changes or amendments to the adopted CIP. Uh, fortunately, uh, for this uh, uh, biennial CIP, we have no amendments to present before the board. Uh, well, so what we essentially offering today is just uh, updates on the project description forms, uh, or what we call PDFs, um, to reflect FY22 spending closeout. This slide uh, is illustrative of uh, one of the important documents that we use to develop the CIP. For We have what we call the project description forms for each of our projects. Uh, if you'll note, the first arrow there really kind of uh, focuses on the section where all of the financial data is kept on the form. Uh, this would include a spending plan, the funding sources, as well as an appropriation schedule for each project. The bottom arrow is really the narrative portion of the PDF, which essentially describes uh, the project and what the justification for doing this particular project is. But again, by point of emphasis, the only thing that we're presenting for, for, uh, before the board today is the first arrow where we just updated the FY22 uh, expenditure information. Essentially, no narrative edits are before the board today. In conclusion, our staff recommends approval of the FY23 through 28 biennial CIP and the FY24 capital budget. In terms of the next steps, uh, as Mike had previously indicated, and, and Andy as well, uh, we've already submitted the uh, program, the capital program, to the county uh, executive and the county council on November the 1st, 2022. The county executive's recommended CIP will go before the council um, uh, January 15th, 2023. And the council review and adoption will occur between February and May of 2023. Uh, ultimately, appropriation uh, will be available come July 1, 2023, which is also FY24. That concludes my presentation. Are there any questions? Thank you. It's nice as a new board to get no changes from what's what's gone on before, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, do I hear a motion to approve? I, I, any questions? I, I do have two questions. Um, one is just a terminology question. You, you mentioned two-thirds of the of the budget was maintenance. Is that broadly speaking a maintenance or narrow? And, and the question is, um, maintenance to me means upkeep as a common terminology, and I'm not sure that's what you mean, and I'm just trying to... This is maintenance in terms of capital maintenance. Uh, okay. It's uh, rehabilitation, uh, renovations, retrofits, um, upgrades to meet current codes. It is different. It is not. Uh, it is not maintenance in terms of the operating budget. These okay. are all uh, operation uh, adjustments, upgrades, renovations of existing assets, capital assets. Okay, it's, thank you. It's different than the operating budget. Thank right, you. right. I, I understand now yeah, it's broadly, not narrowly. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And my, uh, I do have a different question, um, which is uh, budgets are always about choices. Um, are there any programs that were really close that didn't get included here or things that the public might be surprised are not included here? Um, 
So in the off, this being the off year, there's there was not a, an introduction of new projects as you the previous item uh, that you that you just considered. Uh, as this goes through the process, the women's farm market uh, PDF, the uh, lot 24 and 10, will ultimately be added to the to this current CIP. But in the off year, typically there are not major changes to it. Um, Sometimes in past years, there could be a savings plan, and we we're fortunate that there was not a savings plan. Um, and uh, typically in the off year, it would only be uh, supplementals associated with additional funding that came in, grants and such. Uh, there were the grants that uh, Mike referenced in the, his earlier um, presentation, those have not gone to the process yet to the point that we can update the CIP. So we really didn't look to change any anything. Uh, in about six months, we're going to begin the process for the FY25 to 30 CIP, and that is typically, this is the minor year, and the major year will be coming up, so we'll be taking a real hard look at the needs of the parks, uh, listening to input from the board, our leadership, and the community uh, to help us formulate the next CIP, but that'll be a longer process, so really wasn't a lot of considerations uh, here for the or any changes in this this case it's really just the update of the financials closure of the last fiscal year okay if I may paraphrase just for common knowledge we're talking about a continuation of effort here yes Thank absolutely you. yes but the yes but it is a formality that the County Council has mm -hmm. to appropriate what they had originally approved in the major two-year CIP they actually do the appropriation each and every year so that's what we're going to we're mm -hmm. aiming for. But yes, it is a essentially continuation of what was previously previously approved and adopted. Thank you. Any other questions? I'll entertain a motion. Mr. Chairman, I move that we uh, approve the biennial FY 23 to 28 CIP and the FY 24 capital budget as submitted. Is there a second? Second. A second. Thank you. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Good afternoon. We're on the November 3rd meeting of the Planning Board. This is item 7. Uh, it's a, a application for conditional use, uh, 108 East uh, Melbourne. Uh, we have staff here to present the case. Uh, good morning, Chair and members of the board. My name is Elza Heisel McCoy. I'm the chief of Down County Planning, and Down County has the next two items before you. Um, these are two different types of regulatory items, and as part of our presentations today, uh, we have included some additional information on process, which is really going to be a reminder of the things that you learned this morning. But we thought it would be helpful uh, for process things and, and for elements that required a bit of background. We've we've provided that today, and we'll certainly be happy to answer any questions. And with that, I will uh, turn it over to the very capable Mrs. Uh, Katie Mancarini. Okay. Good morning. For the record, I'm Katie Mencarini. I work in the Down County Division of the Montgomery County Planning Department. Um, today I'm presenting Conditional Use 2023-01, Javeria Iqbal Daycare Center, located at 108 East Melbourne Avenue. And as the chair said earlier, the applicant is proposing an expansion of her existing daycare from 12 students to a maximum of 18. Um, as Mr. I uh, Elza Heisman-McCoy mentioned, I wanted to cover a little bit about what a conditional use is and how it works here. So um, the, the item before you, as defined by the terms of the zoning ordinance, is a use that must meet conditional use standards for Division 3.2 through Division 3.7 and requires approval by the hearing examiner under findings Section 7.3.1. So in other words, um, the zoning code land use table identifies certain uses that the council has determined requires additional review. So some uses in certain zones are permitted by right. They can happen without an application. Um, some are limited use or this one, which is a conditional use, additional review. Good. Okay. Now, in this case, a daycare use that enrolls more than eight children in the R60 zone requires a conditional use which is why we're here today. Now, the planning board's role is to provide a recommendation to the hearing examiner, and that recommendation needs to be transmitted a minimum of seven days prior to the hearing examiner's public hearing, and then the public, uh, sorry, the uh, hearing examiner will then make the final determination. Um, the public hearing for the hearing examiner for this case is scheduled for November 28th, 2022, or 2022, thank you. Um, and so we're, we're on schedule, we're good to go. All that's covered. Um, to start off, staff has reviewed the application and is recommending approval of conditional use 2023-01 with conditions on the staff report, page six, um, or sorry, page three, um, and requests permission to transmit the board's recommendation to the hearing examiner. As is typical for a daycare that is a conditional use, staff is recommending some conditions of approval, and I'm just gonna touch on them very high level. So very typically we look at the number of children and non-resident employees that they're looking for. We set hours of operation. We also have some strategies for minimizing transportation impacts on the surrounding neighborhood. And in this case, we're also um, conditioning approval based on approval from the Department of Permitting Services Fire and Rescue prior to use and occupancy permit. That happens at the permit stage, but it was something that we wanted to make sure you're aware of. All right, now let's talk a little bit about the site and where it's located before we get into the application itself. So this site is located in the eastern area of the Greater Silver Spring. So we're south of the Beltway. We are um, east of 29 and west of University Boulevard. Um, and then what I'm showing here on the right is the neighborhood boundary. Now, this is not necessarily the neighborhood as it's established by uh, the residents, but it's important to do for two reasons. So the first is we wanna make sure we identify the context in which this conditional use is so that we can get a sense of what's going on 
on there. And then the second is there is a finding that needs to be made that we don't want to overburden the number of conditional use daycares within a certain area. So what you're seeing here, I've labeled number one and number two in orange in the upper um, corner by Franklin Avenue are the existing conditional uses or formerly known as special exceptions in this area. Uh, number one is uh, a home medical office and number two is an accessory apartment. So based on this neighborhood boundary, there is not a saturation of conditional use daycares in the neighborhood. Okay. A little more about the site description. So it's located at the northwest corner of East Melbourne Avenue and Walden Road, shown in red here. It is zoned R60, as is the entire surrounding neighborhood. Um, it is located within a single-family detached dwelling unit, as is the rest of the context of the neighborhood. The property itself is um, 8,494 square feet, and it is subject to the 2000 East Silver Spring Master Plan. The property is um, currently improved with single-family detached home, which I've talked about. Um, there's also a playground in the back, which is screened by a 6.5-foot um, fence that is um, opaque and wood in structure. Now, previous approvals, I think this is important context for this specific case. So between 2008 and 2020, uh, the family daycare was in operation by right with up to eight children. They, um, the applicant came to the planning department and the hearing examiner in 2020 with requests to increase their enrollment to up to 12 children and one non-resident employee, and that puts it in the group daycare um, category. The planning board heard a presentation from staff in June on that item. They recommended approval with conditions uh, with a vote of 5-0 and then this went to the hearing examiner later that month um, who also approved the um, request with conditions and that went into effect August 11th so that brings us here today so here's what's being proposed so what we have um, is a daycare that, as I've mentioned multiple times, uh, they are requesting an expansion from 12 to 18 children. They would like to also continue to have approval for a non-resident employee. They haven't hired them yet, but they were approved last time. They're hoping to keep that forward here. There are four residents in the home which all staff the daycare. Uh, there are five total on-site parking spaces. So there's four spaces in the existing driveway on Walden Avenue, just seen away from here. Um, but they are proposing one new driveway on East Melbourne Avenue to address some of the parking um, requirements for this project. Um, the rendering on the bottom photo is to show what that would look like. So what we're seeing here is a driveway that's residential in character. Um, they've offered to do a stamped concrete, so it looks nice. It's going to have the capacity for one car, so this is not going to read as like a commercial parking lot. It's just going to look like another driveway. Um, all operations of the existing daycare are to remain the same if approved, and aside from the driveway, there's no exterior changes proposed. Talking a little bit more about the site's circulation and layout. Um, the daycare currently is in operation on the first floor of the home, and that will continue. It will expand into one additional room on the first floor. So all of the um, rooms that are shown with a red dot, that is part of the daycare use specifically. Um, the photo on the left is showing the entry, which will continue to be the main entry for the daycare use. And the red outline box shows uh, the approximate driveway location. Certainly with daycares, parking and traffic is something we need to look at. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to go through this thoughtfully. If you have questions or get lost, let me know. There's a lot of detail here. So first thing is we need to look at the site as a whole when we figure out what the parking minimum needs to be. So in this case, because it is both a residence and a daycare, we have six minimum parking spaces that's required. So two for the residence and four for the daycare. And one thing I want to point out is that four is determined by the square footage of the daycare that it occupies in the space. So it's three for every 1,000 square feet. Prorated, we have four. Okay, so we need a minimum of six. 
staff has determined that we can accommodate, per the zoning code standards, eight, and I'm gonna walk you through them. So we have four tandem spaces in the existing garage on Walden Road, so two front to back, front to back. And then we are proposing a new driveway on um, East Melbourne Avenue, so that gets us to five. And the zoning ordinance actually allows you to use on-street parking on your frontage as well for a daycare use. So based on the um, standards in terms of size, we can fit three on-street parking spaces on Melbourne Avenue where that blue rectangle is. We are not counting the spaces on Walden Road because that's the effective um, intersection spot. And so the parents are told, and I've, I've seen they, they do this quite diligently, not to use that space because that's really where um, the effective intersection is supposed to be. Now, we have both short-term and long-term parking spaces that are in need for the for the site. So certainly the residents, they're gonna be parked there all day long, that's long term, and the employee is gonna be parked there all day long, so that's three. But then we have short term parking needs, right? So that's the parents that are picking up and dropping off. So um, we have established that certainly we can accommodate the minimum required number, but also we're looking at overflow parking needs just in case. So I wanna mention that Walden Road and East Melbourne Avenue have no parking restrictions whatsoever on them right now. There's no permitting, there's no like certain time limits. Um, also on Walden Road specifically, there are no curb cuts, no driveway entrances besides the applicant, um, and no of the house, none of the houses front on it. So we don't typically say that these are their parking spaces because it's not their frontage, but we are gonna say that this is available for overflow if needed and generally speaking parents are taking somewhere between three and four minutes to load and unload so this would not be a long-term burden on the adjacent roadway network so we just want to point that out um, the next part is traffic and I'm gonna take a breath because I know <laughs> you guys are probably all observing a lot of information thank you okay yes. I'm gonna give you a chance to take a breath I'm gonna ask some questions please I, I would love can, to because uh, <laughs> as it so happens um, I lived in this neighborhood for like 20 some years so I know this literally like the back of my hand. Um, so here, here are a couple things. So if you look at the house next door mm -hmm. to the one where the one is, is on this picture, mm -hmm. there is a little, um, I guess, parking pad. Mm -hmm. okay. So, so what, uh, what I'm curious about is what, whether what, you, what is proposed here as the additional parking space will that resemble this parking pad or will it be more extensive? Oh, sure. So it will be similar in scale and size because that parking pad only accommodates one car, but it is going to be in a very nice state of, you know, concrete stamped, yeah. So, because uh, I was actually just out there last week, so I know what you're talking about. It'll look a little bit nicer. Yeah. Well, I'm not casting aspersions <laughs> on the parking pad. I'm For just, sure. I'm yes, just asking the question. <laughs> um, so, um, I have one more, wait a minute. Um, as, as far as the overall expansion of the daycare center is concerned, or the addition of, a, the addition of children, I should say, because you're not expanding the space. I, I'm curious, and maybe I missed it, um, does our, uh, I guess, health and human services who regulates daycare centers and licenses daycare centers. Uh, I'm just curious as to whether they have specific um, like space requirements per child mm -hmm. and whether those space requirements are met with when you add on these six extra kids. 
excellent question. So you're asking to make sure that we have an adequate number of space for the children per For the children that right. we're, yeah. So that's set at the state level, and I will, and just, just to make sure we're all on the same page. So that's technically not a finding we need to make, but it's important to know, right, because we don't want to set them up for failure. I don't know exactly the size off the top of my head, but I have been talking with the applicant to make sure she is aware of those and in compliance with those, and given that she just expanded recently, she's very familiar with those requirements. Um, so I'm confident that she's going to be able to meet that. Um, there are also, in addition to other things, sorry to answer questions you didn't ask, uh, but there are requirements about how much time they get outside, that they have adequate space, and those are all things that are also on top of our regulations that she'll have to meet. You know, the reason I asked about it is because, you know, what, what we do seem to be concerned about is uh, fire and rescue. Right. Right. And so, right. to me, the space per child would have some impact on that. Potentially. Um, so when I've been talking with the um, fire and rescue staff, what they've been mostly worried about is like where the access is to the home, how can, making sure that play equipment isn't in the way so they can get their hoses around if they need to, making sure that the um, access to the house is clearly marked so they can get to it. Um, and then also there is potential that sprinklers may be required, but we're going to figure all of that out prior to issuance of um, occupancy and building permit. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. With that, uh, do you have any other questions before I jump into juicy traffic stuff? Okay, great. This is my favorite. This is my bread and butter. Okay. So one of the things that we need to look at is what is the traffic impact of this? So we want to figure out how many trips are they going to generate during the peak travel hour? So we're going to make some assumptions here. We're going to assume that every child is driven, that every child is being driven in a separate car. There's no siblings. We're going to assume that the children come and leave at the same peak hour and that the non-resident employees all coming at the same time. When you add all those trips up together, you get the number 37, both in the morning and evening peak hour. The 2020-2024 growth and in infrastructure policy, which was approved by council, sets our standards by which we measure those um, traffic impacts. The threshold at which a transportation impact study is required is 50 person trips. So at 37, we are below that, and they have met all of the transportation impact um, uh, analysis requirements. That said, we did have them do the dwelling analysis. We did um, a parking review just to make sure that everything can be accommodated within the amount of time, which is why you get certain conditions of approval that set um, no more than eight cars can be coming at the same time. She's been enforcing that staggered schedule, and I can witness it. Um, and it's been working very effectively. Um, and um, I have myself witnessed that there is not overflow parking happening with the 12 children that she's approved for right now. Okay. Master plan conformance. So as I've mentioned earlier, this is subject to the 2000 East Silver Spring Master Plan. Um, this site specifically, and even the neighborhood is not mentioned specifically. Furthermore, daycare uses actually aren't mentioned, which is a little surprising, but, but I do think this recommendation is very important to put into context for this conditional use application. So um, the plan aims to preserve existing residential character, encourage neighborhood reinvestment, and enhance the quality of life through East Silver Spring. Now this use is a very needed use and is a good neighborhood service, so we think that that does uphold this. And given that the only exterior change that they're making is this driveway, which as conditioned will be residential in character, we think that we're meeting all of the goals of this specific recommendation on page 21. So with that, thank you for bearing with me. Um, the proposed use conforms to all applicable requirements of the daycare center, both for um, section 344E2, that's the use standards, as well as the regulatory review of 731 for conditional uses. It also um, upholds all the applicable development standards under the R60 zone, the house is in compliance, um, and it's consistent with the 2000 East Silver Spring Master Plan. I also wanna point out the applicant has conformed with all of the noticing requirements, both for us and for the hearing examiner. 
Um, the hearing examiner has sent out written notice ahead of schedule, and I've reviewed it myself. Um, staff recommends, therefore, approval of conditional use CU 2023-01 with the included conditions in the staff report, and we request permission to transmit the board's recommendation to the hearing examiner. Um, that letter uh, will come from the signature of the chair and will be transmitted at the end of this week, assuming we can get clear direction and that we've met your needs. So with that, I'm done. <laughs> and just to be clear, we're not approving the conditional use. We're approving transmittal of, of our recommendation and conditions. Correct. And any changes that you want to make. And, correct. Thank you. Yes, I, I just have a question, too. One is um, you mentioned the Silver Spring plan, and you gave us a slide about that, but I'd also uh, encourage that we consider that um, the particularity of child care centers are really necessary in neighborhoods where the children live, right? And that relationship, I think, fits into this description. Thank so you. I wanted to add that. Um, it also strikes me that in terms of parking and transportation, this site really benefits from being a corner lot with dual frontage. Mm -hmm. And that's typically considered a liability for residential properties to have dual frontage, but here I think it really works favorably. Um, this is a little bit of a hypothetical question, but I think it's kind of an important thing for the public to understand that we're considering. When we're expanding a conditional use in a neighborhood, in a residential zone particularly, what are the thresholds that makes that onerous to the neighborhood? Right, because I think as businesses just kind of expand, you want them to expand, you want them to succeed, but at some point, and this happens with institutional uses too particularly, they become no longer appropriate in, in residential zones. So can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and thank you for that opportunity. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like at what point do these get too big for what they're meant for, right? Yes. Okay, so as a point of note, the daycare uses we have, um, you know, up up to eight is a group daycare, and then eight to 12 is another a type of daycare. Now we're at a daycare facility. There's technically no limit in the zoning code. Um, they say up to 30 and then 30 plus. Talking to this applicant, looking at the available parking that's around, looking at um, the size of the house, as you mentioned, um, we recommended that she go to 18. She at first kind of asked, you know, how far could I go? And, and we wanted to be very thoughtful about this because we have recommended approval of a, um, the, actually the hearing examiner approved a uh, daycare for 24 in a much larger home on a much larger site. So we're trying to put all those things together and I apologize that it's not like a perfect answer of like, you know, it's not a perfect flow chart, but we are trying to look at all these different things to think about what is reasonable for her business, what is reasonable for the community to tolerate in terms of those other impacts. And when we ran some of these numbers that are more objective, 18 seemed to be the appropriate fit for this one. The hearing examiner may scale back further, and we've had that happen before, but I think I'm pretty confident that 18 is appropriate for this site, given um, the tool frontages that she has and the available on-street parking that's, that's there. Okay, thank you for that explanation, because I'm looking at it as a form-based solution. We don't really have, it's a judgment call, right? When does this become a burden to the neighbors is really the criteria, right? Right. And, and I just want the public to hear that we're thinking about when that happens. To put a fine point on, I don't expect an expansion from this daycare at this site okay. in the future. Right. And my last, my last item is, um, I'm actually going to suggest, and I just want to run this by staff, that we enhance condition number two and, and include the hours of outdoor recreation play um, because that seems to me to be a possible impact in terms of noise in the neighborhood, and it's buried in the other text. Um, so I would include that as saying uh, uh, use of the outdoor rear play area is limited to, to after 9 a.m. and not more than eight children at a time. Mm -hmm. Do you see any problem with that? No. Okay. And I'll put that on the motion if I make the motion. Okay. Do I, Any other uh, questions or comments? 
I'll just say you did a, a very good job on showing the other daycare centers around so that it's, it's not an overburden on the neighborhood due to other approvals uh, as well. So I'll just say that. Uh, do I hear a motion to amend? <laughs> Mr. Chair, I move that we, uh, we transmit the um, conditional use amendment CU 2023-01 for 108 East Melbourne Street with a modification of condition two with the addition of a clause that uh, to the hours of operation that includes use of outdoor rear play areas limited to after 9 a.m. and not by not more than eight children at a time. Do I hear a second? A second that. Oh, oh, thank you. You were very quick, Commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> it's well needed. I think this was a, a great plan. <laughs> um, uh, all those in favor? Aye. 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 Ayes have it. Thank you very much for an uh, excellent presentation.
Good morning. We are on item eight on November 3rd. Uh, this is uh, a sketch plan uh, for 4405 East West Highway. Um, there is a speaker after the uh, staff makes its presentation. Please go ahead. Well, good morning, Mr. Chairman oh. and members of the board. Hi. Uh, <laughs> surprising you from the corner over here. Uh, so welcome. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad uh, I had a good distraction over there. Um, so uh, again, welcome. Congratulations in your appointments, and thank you for uh, uh, stepping up and serving the community at this time. It's, it's very much appreciated as a resident and as, as a staff person, so thank you. Uh, for the record, I'm Adam Bossi. I'm uh, the lead reviewer for this project with the Down County Planning Team. Uh, and as Mr. Chair mentioned, this is item 8, sketch plan 320-220-120 for 4405 East West Highway. Um, and as uh, mentioned earlier, we've got a few educational slides in here to kind of help, uh, help frame the discussion a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to start off with one of those uh, first off. So this is a sketch plan application. This really uh, is meant to describe a proposed project at its early stage. Uh, it does provide this overview of a, of a development concept uh, really before a developer has to expend uh, significant resources on design, architecture, engineering, et cetera. So it's really a check on their, their development concept that they're putting forth. Uh, as noted here, it does focus on the general design, density, circulation, public benefits in relationship to the master plan uh, that the proposal puts forth. Um, this particular project will have to go through first the sketch plan review, and that will be followed by a preliminary plan and a site plan. Uh, as I mentioned, the sketch plan is really that first basic kind of concept uh, proposal. With the preliminary plan, the applicant will be back. Uh, that's a subdivision to combine uh, the multiple existing lots that they have, which you'll see in the slides later, as well as um, uh, show conformance with the subdivision requirements. With the site plan, that's really a review of uh, all the relevant details, the whole enchilada, if you will, at that point. So at this project, uh, staff has reviewed the application and is uh, recommending the planning board approve the sketch plan with the binding elements and nine conditions that are detailed on, in the staff report on pages three through five. Uh, these binding elements are very typical for most sketch plans. Uh, and as you can see here, there's really five that we focus on. Maximum density and height, the approximate location of the lots and public dedications, the general location and extent of public open space, the general location of vehicular access points, as well as a public benefits schedule. Uh, the conditions that are listed in the staff report uh, really identify project-specific issues, and most of those are set up to be resolved as the design uh, uh, evolves through the uh, process, through that preliminary and sketch plan, preliminary and site plan process. Excuse me. Uh, looking at the site that is the subject of this hearing. I'm looking at this slide specifically starting from left to right. We have this small inset map. This is uh, from the 2017 downtown uh, Bethesda downtown sector plan. Uh, it does show the sector plan area, which is divided into different districts. Uh, each district does have slightly different goals that the sector plan does define for it. Uh, this particular site uh, is loosely shown in, uh, by the, the yellow star 
uh, is in the Pearl District. This is in the sort of east central portion of downtown. The aerial image that we see here on the right, uh, the subject site is outlined in red. Uh, as I mentioned before, it is located at 4405 East West Highway. Um, and this is on the north side of that roadway, approximately 100 feet east of its intersection with Pearl Street. Uh, East-West Highway is uh, one way in the westerly direction in this location, so it really is sort of a key easterly entrance into downtown. Uh, the Bethesda Metro Station and the core of downtown are about a quarter mile to the west, as uh, labeled here on the slide, and the Bethesda Chevy Chase High School is located uh, next door to our property. Uh, surrounding the site, just to give you a little bit more context, as I mentioned, we do have the high school, which is labeled on there. Uh, the site does abut uh, where the new parking structure with the tennis courts on top are located. Uh, to the east is a four-story office building. To the south across East-West Highway are uh, a four-story office building and an 11-story residential tower. Uh, and to the west are two single-family dwellings that are utilized as commercial offices as well as a uh, surface parking lot associated with the church use on the opposite side of Pearl Street. Looking a little bit closer at our site, uh, we do see it has an inverted L shape with a tracked area of approximately one and a half acres. And the site only has frontage on East-West Highway. There are no other public right-of-ways that abut the property. Uh, existing parking does cover most of the site. And there is a five-story uh, office building uh, located in the area proximate to East-West Highway. Uh, in the slide two, we also just get a closer look of those abutting uses of the office building on the right side and the smaller single-family dwellings that support offices on the left. Uh, as you can see here on this slide, the majority of the site is in the commercial residential zone, CR 1.5, C 1.5, R 1.5, H 100. Uh, and there is a small portion of the property that is in the commercial residential town zone, and that's that uh, little slice of property really on its uh, northwesternmost corner. Uh, the site and surrounding neighborhood are included in the 2017 uh, downtown's, uh, Bethesda downtown sector plan area. And uh, not illustrated on this slide, but I do want to bring up here, the site is not within the Bethesda parking lot district, and it's also not within the urban district. Uh, those are two significant items, just because where the site is outside the parking lot district, it's not subject to those same uh, requirements as other projects are in downtown. And where it's outside the urban district, um, both the property owner and DOTSHA will have some responsibility for streetscape maintenance. So it's outside of the urban district's area that they maintain the streetscape. So as I mentioned earlier, the site is in the Pearl District area of the sector plan, uh, which is really framed as, as an up-and-coming eastern gateway to downtown. The sector plan goals for the district essentially seek to increase the mix of uses, improve the pedestrian realm, and enhance the area to become a more vibrant and welcoming gateway into downtown. And our site is loosely outlined in red here. Um, one um, and a unique thing with this particular corner of the Pearl District 
um, the sector plan does recommend a new neighborhood public park space for this corner of the block, sort of to the southwest of the high school. Uh, it's called the Bethesda, Cha Bethesda Chevy Chase East Neighborhood Green in the sector plan. There's numerous references to it. Um, as we discussed in, the sec uh, in our staff report with this particular case, uh, staff did recommend an applicant and parks department also agreed that um, a financial contribution should be made to help the parks department actually realize the vision for this park in the future. So a little bit about the Bethesda overlay zone. As I mentioned, the site is within the overlay zone. The overlay zone was ultimately created to implement sector plan recommendations uh, related to density, building height, affordable housing, parks, and um, design. Boz density is a tool uh, that the overlay zone makes available. And ultimately, new development that chooses to uh, request Boz density can exceed the maximum gross floor area um, that's allowed under the map zone. So here we have a CR and CRT zones. Um, so the project uh, can propose to request density above and beyond what's mapped by those zones. To qualify for that BAS density, um, a project must propose to use all that uh, mapped gross floor area, first and foremost, and it's also required to make a park impact payment uh, prior to building permit. A park impact payment is really exactly what it sounds like. It's a funding mechanism that was set up by the sector plan to help enable the Department of Parks to provide uh, public open space and park areas in the downtown where, uh, as you can imagine, it, you know, the price of land and building things is quite expensive. So this was a tool that was created to help enable that. And I think our Parks Department friends uh, had some great presentations to that point earlier. Um, ultimately, uh, that PIP number is based on a formula uh, that starts with the requested total of BAS density that an application seeks, subtracts density that are allocated toward moderately priced dwelling units that are included in the proposal, and then that's multiplied by a square foot ratio. Uh, that ratio is right around $11 per square foot right now, and it is uh, updated by the planning board, I believe, on an annual or some periodic basis. Thank you. Uh, again, those PIP funds are used to acquire land and implement uh, public park development projects in the sector plan area. And that final PIP payment is determined later on as the design evolves through the site plan process. A little bit more uh, about the BOS. Uh, BOS density is monitored at the sketch plan, so staff is keeping track of what developers are asking for and is being approved by the board at this time. And then uh, we have reserved at site plan in quotes, so ultimately where we're taking that penciled in number, putting in ink on our end, and really tracking that as more of a firm number. And that amount of BOS density is uh, has to be used by a developer within a certain time period after it's been awarded. Um, so the BAS overall does set a maximum. Please. Sorry, just to clarify, if they don't uh, begin development of the project within the required time frame, the site plan approval is revoked and they would have to come back. So we actually had a project, we've had a, several projects in Bethesda lose their site plan approvals, including the BAS density allocation. Um, and one came back 
um, a couple of months ago to sort of uh, re re reserve uh, that that density. So there are specific um, deadlines in the zoning code. Okay. Just to follow up on that, and this may be a newbie question, I apologize, but that's a vesting action, right? Can you invest into the site or lose your allocation? So I, I, so vesting has legal implications, and so I'm looking to my legal staff to answer the legal element of it. But from a tracking perspective in the zoning code, and, and Adam's about to get into this, there's a, there's a development cap for total development in Bethesda. And so uh, as projects get approved and built, the amount of available density gets smaller and smaller. And so uh, they, uh, they make their park impact payment when they get building permit. Um, and I, I'm going to defer to, to Matt in terms of vesting. I believe density vesting is also I'll concede vesting is a building choice permit. Of I was yeah. looking for a parallel. But, but, but generally speaking, yeah. I thought I was going to be a zoning lawyer again for a second. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to <laughs> I wrote a lot of papers on vesting. <laughs> it's a very glamorous profession. It is. Thank you. I think so. Okay. Please proceed. All right. Thank you. And, and as was just said, so uh, the BOS does set a maximum total density for the sector plan area, and that's uh, 32.4 million square feet. Uh, as of the last uh, monitoring cycle, we're at around 29.3 million square feet that's already been allocated. So there's still about 3 million plus square feet uh, in play. Uh, as mentioned, uh, that is tracked regularly, and we do have a website where the public can access that information. So now to the actual proposal that's in front of you. Uh, the sketch plan proposes to redevelop the entirety of the site with a new building of up to 355,000 total square feet. Um, and this is for a mixed-use building to include up to 12,000 square feet of commercial and up to 348,000 square feet of residential with the 15% moderately priced dwelling units. Can I just say one thing? The up to was a little bit interesting for me because the, are you requiring uh, commercial on the ground floor at a minimum at all? So, no. Okay. That's the very short answer. Is we, we do up to so that if they do a little bit less, they don't have to come back and amend the plans to do uh, less. understand. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, so it's really about, uh, at this point, those up to amounts are to allow that flexibility so as the applicant really kind of goes through the design process and figures out how much residential versus commercial is going to be workable for them at that site, this provides that, that wiggle room to allow for that, but within that cap of 355,000. So, sorry, can I, just to be clear, so you're saying that that it could come to pass that there is no commercial on the on the first floor. Is that is that what you're saying? That it's zero. That the number becomes zero. So, in in terms of what's actually built, that is correct. So, they are asking. Let's say this were a site plan, and they want to build up to three hundred and fifty-five thousand square feet. They could build two hundred thousand square feet and would not need to come back to us. Um, and it's up to twelve thousand square feet of commercial. They could build five hundred square feet of commercial. Commercial. They could build. No commercial. So, you know, um, so I guess next question is, 
Um, is there some kind of preference, if you will, um, that the county normally looks upon mixed-use developments? I mean, by, by saying <laughs> it's, it's mixed-use, um, and if one has no intention of actually mixing the use, is is there some sort of um, and and no no aspersions being cast at the particular folk here? I'm just trying to understand. Um, is there a little game going on? So I, I think that there are two. I think there are two important things to identify here. One is that you know we recognize that the development process takes a certain amount of time and has a lot of variables that feed into it. Uh, you know, interest rates are going up. That has certainly impacted the way uh, development projects are built based on what they've been approved for. So uh, the developers, based on the recommendations and allowances of the sector plan, come to us and say, we want to build this project and we want it to include, you know, X amount of square feet, X number of dwelling units, and we do our review for that maximum, and then depending on market conditions, they may build nothing. They may build some portion of that. So that's one piece of it that we, after site plan, we generally won't see it again unless they need to, you know, if they want to increase their density. Or let's say they're making a park impact payment and their building is getting smaller, they may say, we don't need as much BOS density. Let's dial that back so our park impact payment is smaller. But generally, once you know, once they're done here with site plan, they're dealing with permitting services for, for getting a building permit. The other piece that is Bethesda specific is that, as Adam pointed out, to be able to use BOS density, you have to uh, use all of your mapped density. In some, on, for, in, uh, for some properties in, the, in downtown Bethesda, the way the zone is set up is there's a total amount of density, and then there's a commercial portion and a residential portion, and then the height number. For some properties, those numbers are the same. The total is three, the maximum commercial is three, the maximum residential is three. For other properties, there's a gap. So let's say the total is three, the commercial is 2.5, or, or uh, is 0.5, and the residential is 2.5. That project cannot use BOS density unless they get an entitlement for all of the commercial density. So in Bethesda, there are two projects in particular where we've seen developers uh, use um, uh, sort of WeWork kind of uh, office space, which from a zoning perspective is a commercial use. Um, and we've seen, and I don't know if this project is, is looking to do that or not, but in order to be able to access BOS density, they need entitlement for the full amount. And that was an issue with, with some previous projects. I think the board had, the board and staff had read it one way, the courts read it another way, and then we went with the courts reading. So those are sort of two, there's a more general scenario that you'll see in other parts of the county where you have commercial residential zoning. The second part is Bethesda specific. I'd like to follow up on uh, Commissioner Branson's comments um, because I, I want to make sure I'm understanding as well. I was on the board during the time that we passed this BOS. Um, so 
I mean, just bottom line, straight answer. Are you stating that someone could use their in, entire commercial um, density without actually providing any of the other mixed use space? Or uh, when I last left, I thought there was a minimum that once they were approved with their site plan or sketch plan, that if the minimum described a particular mix, 30, 40, 60, whatever it is, that if they didn't meet that minimum, they had to come back in for a revision. Is that not true anymore? So I think as a, and I can only speak for down county projects, I think it is more typical, I think what you're seeing here of up to um, is more typical for down county. Uh, there are some projects where, you know, if you do the math, for example, here, if you add a 12,000 to 348, you don't get 355. So what that means is that the total in this case would be limited to 355 and the 12,000 to 348 could fluctuate, but they would need to, to maximize their density, they would need to do at least 7,000 just to make the math work. In order to set a minimum, the board would need to approve a condition of approval that said minimum. So the board, um, I think the board could do that. I think in, you know, in years past, uh, there have been projects where the board has done that. But I think as a general yeah. matter, recognizing just sort of the uncertainties of the development climate over the time frame to get these things sure. you know, developed and approved, we have not taken that approach. I, I mean, I, I understand that. And I'm presuming that the staff would have stated, you know, this isn't enough or it doesn't work, right? Um, and so then your recommendation to us would have been not to go forward. Um, but I, I know over time as things change, I'm going to use one comparison, which is not anything to do with the boss, but for example, in, in Clarksburg and the various town centers and so forth, um, the folks got all the density, but they didn't have the uh, pre-approved retail and town center and so forth and there are things still not there so over time I, I would be interested to discuss this more as a board so we really understand um, if things have changed um, so much over the course of a plan that by the time it's delivered it's you know maybe 100 percent residential I, I would be interested to know that but um, yeah just one, one other thing I, I would add and this comes up a lot when we're doing outreach for master plans the planning board is not in a position to say there's going to be a Dunkin Donuts in this site. Right. So we're just saying, you know, that there's you could do up to this amount of retail, but the market, right. is, I mean, I, and I know Commissioner Presley, you appreciate this, the market's going to dictate oh, yeah. what and when and how long and how much. Sure. But it doesn't dictate, I mean, if we initially state, look to serve this area, we think we need at least, you know, what? who knows, maybe it's uh, 40,000 square feet of commercial. I would I would just be interested in knowing that those things are protected over time. Um, but that's it. I, I don't want to belabor that for this project. I understand what you're saying. But um, thank you, Commissioner Bronson, for bringing that up. I think it's um, I could certainly see how that might be a community concern. Mr. Chair, can we comment on this after we get through this application? Because I got a comment, but I don't think it applies directly to what we're talking about at the moment. Uh, certainly, we could go on. It's on our agenda. If we have a follow-up items we can talk about. Great. Thank you. Uh, were there any other questions on the overall proposal at this point? All right, I'll continue on. Uh, looking a little bit more closely, 
we see here the illustrative uh, image of the ground floor of this uh, proposal. Um, the retail commercial spaces they're showing fronting on East-West Highway with residential really throughout the rest of the building and on the upper floors. Uh, this particular plan shows a vehicular access point at the southwest corner of the site that's indicated by the blue arrow that we see here. Uh, during the course of our review, uh, it was noted that this uh, access point would need to shift further easterly from this location. Uh, and to that effect, staff did recommend a condition of approval, condition 8A, in the, in the staff report for the final alignment and details associated with the access to be worked out at the time of preliminary plan. Uh, and at that time, those things are usually finalized uh, anyways. Uh, given the site only has one frontage and a limited distance along that frontage, we feel that for the purposes of a sketch plan, you know, providing access to East-West Highway is, is appropriate with, again, the details to be worked out at the next stage. Uh, also here with this image, I do want to uh, point your attention to the streetscape design that's being proposed. Uh, at this point, the sketch plan provides what is a fairly typical Bethesda streetscape with paving, um, uh, pavers, um, excuse me, street trees, etc. In this particular area along East-West Highway, the bicycle master plan calls for a 2A separated bike lane. Um, that condition obviously is not uh, existing currently and will probably be implemented in small pieces as developments come along, uh, come online in that area and or if DOT comes forward with a large capital improvement project. I'm not aware that any of those are on the table at this point, so we're looking particularly at the site. Uh, so what the applicant has done here in consultation with our friends at SHA, DOT, and in the planning department is to provide an interim condition that we believe is appropriate uh, that consists of a side path instead of the bike lanes. Um, this still provides the same general functionality, layout, um, and amenities in that space. And it's also a configuration that once a uh, full bike lane is provided in that area, this can be easily converted to fit that condition. Now we see on this slide um, just a section drawing of really what I was just speaking to with the frontage layout. Uh, the image on the right is that section drawing. The building face would be on your left and uh, east-west highways, westerly lanes would be on the right side of that image. Uh, so this slide and the following slide include some perspective images of the proposed building that illustrate its general scale, massing, on the facade elements that are being put forth. Uh, the building is designed to fit into that inverted L-shaped site that we saw earlier. Uh, here we see the building is proposed to be 100 feet tall and include a distinctive base, middle, and top. Uh, there is a wave articulation as well as recessed and protruding balconies that wrap, um, wrap the facade and are unifying elements within the architectural design. Uh, looking at this from a couple different angles, or excuse me, looking from north to south in these images, we, uh, the image on the left, we see the north side of the building does include some step backs. Those would be stepping back the height of the building as it approaches the R60 zone where the high school is located. Uh, we do see the continua continuation of that wave articulation in the facade and uh, rooftop space that will be dedicated for mechanical uh, equipment, residential amenities, and some space for green roof elements. 
And, and just a, a quick, can you go back to one, sorry. The, um, just as sort of another technical point to put on your radar, the, the step backs um, that Adam described along the R60 is required by the zoning code. So where you have commercial residential development backing onto single family zoning, that there's a, there's a height limit, and in this case it's 35 feet, and then there's a 45 degree plane. Um, and so in uh, edge conditions, um, you will see this as sort of a matter of course. As I mentioned earlier in the proposal, uh, the sector plan does provide for a new neighborhood public park to be located uh, in, the, in the vicinity of this site. Uh, excuse me, as I discussed uh, earlier, uh, part of this proposal is to make a contribution toward that, uh, making that park happen. Uh, other developments near this site will also need to contribute in the future as their proposals come forth. Uh, the amount and form of that contribution is still something that's being worked out, um, and those ultimate vehicles and, and dollar amount would be determined at site plan. Um, this contribution for the neighborhood green would be above and beyond separate from the PIP payment. The PIP payment is strictly required to tap that BOS density. So this is a separate uh, sort of quasi-unique thing for this property where this particular park is proposed here. And, and again, just to sort of to put a bit of a finer point on it, every project in downtown Bethesda that uses Bethesda overlay zone density makes a park impact payment that contributes to uh, park improvements throughout the plan area, where the sector plan recommends a specific park or open space in a particular district, the properties, uh, you know, if if the if the site is located on a particular property, which is rare in Bethesda, but it, you will see some later in the year, um, or is in the same district, the uh, the contribution in that case is about sector plan conformance. So it's realizing the recommendations of the sector plan um, and is in addition to the park impact payment, which is serving a different purpose. Thank you, and I am so glad to have you here adding these finer points. <laughs> Um, so moving on to slide 17, uh, public benefits in general. So uh, this project is in the CR zone. The CR zone optional method of development does require the provision, the provision of public benefits that enhance or contribute to the objectives of the zones. So kind of picking up a little bit uh, with what was said earlier. Uh, the overlay zone does tailor those public benefit considerations for uh, Bethesda, and it, it does increase the a potential maximum number of benefit points that a project can be uh, awarded or could seek. Uh, benefit categories are approved here with site plan. Um, so you can see those major categories on the right, oh, excuse me, sketch plan, thank you. So those categories are approved here at sketch plan. Uh, those major categories are shown here on, on the slide. Um, the points are determined at site plan, thank you. Uh, so here, this particular project is required to provide a minimum of 100 benefit points in four categories. Uh, the table here shows us that the applicant is seeking to provide at least 111 points in those four categories, which are connectivity and mobility, diversity of uses and activities, quality building and site design, and protection and enhancement of the natural environment. Um, 
going back to the uh, potential Bethesda Chevy Chase East Neighborhood Green, uh, again, where the sector plan does have a requirement for this here, staff did feel it was appropriate for the board and applicant to consider uh, leaving the door open, essentially, to uh, requesting and being awarded major public facility points for contributing to a new potential major public facility in the area. Again, where the categories are approved now, um, we thought it would be great to include that so the applicant wouldn't potentially have to come back and seek an amendment later on to, to include that category and seek those points. Uh, conditions 3 and 4E in the staff report touch on that. Uh, another unique uh, aspect of the BAS is the exceptional design public benefit points. Within the overlay zone, a minimum of 10 out of 30 exceptional design points are required. Uh, the overlay zone also set out and created a design advisory panel, we lovingly call the DAP, uh, to provide recommendations at heightened design excellence in downtown, uh, really seeking to improve the quality of architecture, urban design, etc. Uh, panelists on the DAP uh, do include an architect, landscape architect, a representative from academia, uh, a developer, and a resident with experience in design and land development, and uh, the planning department's senior urban designer also participates on that panel as well. Uh, DAP comments must be considered in determining exceptional benefit points. And so uh, uh, just a little bit more color commentary. So this is an advisory panel. So the DAP makes their recommendation. The staff will also make a recommendation, but it's the board who ultimately decides how many points are awarded. Yep. So with this particular project, the uh, DAP did review it earlier this year and voted the proposal is on track to receive those minimum 10 design points. Uh, and they did have comments that the applicant should continue to refine the building massing, the architectural design and streetscape improvements, um, again, as the design progresses through the preliminary and site plan processes. You want to point out, uh, during the review of this, we did receive one letter at the end of September from an abutter noting concerns with the site access location that was proposed, the blue arrow that I mentioned would be changing locations as the design evolves noise and screening, and just the overall massing of the building. Um, staff did respond to those in our report uh, on some of the final pages of it, so our response is there. But essentially, you know, most of these issues, we appreciate hearing about them. We're glad we heard about them, and they are really the type of, of building and design issues that we deal with at preliminary plan and site plan. Uh, again, where I think I think a number of these concerns will definitely be addressed where that access point is supposed to slide further east. So I think we're, uh, or the project is on its way to really responding to these pretty, pretty directly in its next iterations that we see. Uh, with that said, uh, oh. oh, yes. Thank you, Elsa. So we did receive another letter after. Um, after the board's noon deadline yesterday, but did want to recognize that uh, we received it because we thought it brought up some good valid points too. So this letter did not make it into your record. Uh, this was received from the East Bethesda Citizens Association. Uh, and the key issues that they raised in their letter had to do with um, uh, potentially adding more trees and landscaping treatments facing uh, the high school, so on the northern portion of the site. 
they had some concerns with the neighborhood green um, and asked some questions about why this particular applicant is not being requested to donate, dedicate land versus uh, make a payment toward uh, the future of the park. And they had some concerns regarding high school capacity in a sector plan recommendation. Uh, the sector plan recommendation for the school, of which there were five, um, essentially talked about, well, what happens when the school has a capacity challenge? Where can they go to expand and, you know, add more capacity? One of the suggestions was to look at acquiring abutting properties. This particular site is one of three properties that abuts the school property. There are no other abutting ones. Whether the school has looked into that or not, I'm, I'm not certain. Uh, I do know based on the latest, and, and please correct me if I, I misstate this, the growth impact policy. Growth and infrastructure policy. and infrastructure policy, thank you. Uh, the school it does still have capacity and at this time when it, or excuse me, when it is reviewed at the time of preliminary plan for adequate public facilities, we'll be looking into that more in detail. But at this time, it looks like there is not a capacity challenge, and they most likely would not need to make uh, a utilization payment. But again, that's to be determined at a preliminary plan. Just on, on the, so the, I think, as Adam said, the, the first issue, I think, is something we'll be looking at at site plan. Uh, for, the, for the neighborhood green, the, the sector plan, um, I, I, somewhat specifically calls out the church parking lot that's on this block as a location for the park. Um, and so uh, it, I think park staff um, and Henry Coppel is here to answer any, any questions um, from their development review team. But parks and planning staff ag agree that, you know, this property given its uh, size and situation is not appropriate to dedicate land for this. If they wanted to, we would be happy to accept it, but that, um, a contribution towards the realization of the park elsewhere on the block we felt was more appropriate. And and that that's a complicated question, and I think we're going to have a lot of discussions between now and site plan. And when we come in, uh, before you with the site plan, we will uh, we'll, we'll go through that with you then. Okay, I just have a quick. Um Quick question. Uh, earlier, we we talked about the Bethesda Greenway or something. <laughs> earlier today, right? the, the, the park is on the southern end of the of Bethesda. Right. So, so this is this is um, how far is this from from that park that we we spoke about earlier today? Probably about a ten minute walk. Okay. So, so it's not it's not really you can't walk out your building and. It, this is not necessarily a suitable substitute, if you will. Correct. It's, okay. it, it, the, the sector plan for each of the districts uh, looks at open space requirements, uh, park, you know, new park requirements, and the Eastern Greenway is, uh, it's actually listed, Eastern Greenway on, on the, the map. So it, it's a little bit further up, and the Bethesda Farm Women's Market is um, sort of northwest of here. So if you went sort of west from the star, that's more or less where it is. And, and each of these, um, sorry, southwest. So the, each, of the, each of the parks and open spaces within the context of the sector plan is serving a different function. There are different scales. Some are regional, some are neighborhood. 
Uh, the Bethesda the Farm Women's Market is a regional attractor. This is, by definition, a neighborhood green. But I think it was in this document that talked about um, about how these um, green areas, if you will, um, are, are being developed um, sort of, I don't want to say haphazardly, but, but not as part of a, an overall vision. Um, and, and so I, I just wanted to raise that concern that there seems to be some things scattered. And, and I'm wondering if those scattered things um, pose any any problem in in as as we look at um, the development of or further development of of this area in in downtown Bethesda. Certainly, and I I would suggest the word you're looking for might be piecemeal. Uh, so That's a better the, word. Thank yeah, you. So the the the, vi the vision is very clear. So the Bethesda downtown plan has a very clear vision. Uh, for open spaces of various uh, types that went through an extensive public process, was approved by the planning board, approved by the county council, adopted by the commission. So the vision in sector plans for open space, for bikeway improvements oh oh. are, are holistic, but the implementation is generally by definition piecemeal. So as each, as this project is coming in, for example, they're gonna make frontage improvements for the bikeway. They are going to make a contribution towards uh, the park as other projects come in. So it, it's, that's, we would love to be able to be able to do it all at once. And in, in you know, places like Bethesda where the ownership is very fractured and land is very expensive, the only way we are able to do it is sort of in this piecemeal fashion. Uh, Commissioner Presley, did you want to say something? I Sorry, guess. I'm trying to have a little trouble with the mic. Okay, yes, I was, I, but I think you've already answered it now. I was just gonna respond to Commissioner Bronson that we used to have such a problem with piecemeal parks and little pop-up parks and they were, you know, not really didn't serve the community well, but now in the plans and as they were mentioning Bethesda sector plan, it's already been indicated where things are needed and what type of things should be there. So it is part of a holistic plan. Um, and, and I think that's still true today, right? Yeah. And just and one more point on, on that, that we, it, it's in the staff report we did, but we didn't, uh, mentioned in the presentation is that uh, with the 2014 zoning code and with the Bethesda downtown plan, there is a disincentive yeah. to have these small little privately owned yeah. public spaces. And in fact, this property, so the, the zoning code in, in the CR zone has a table that says based on the size of your property and the number of street frontages, this is your required public open space. This property given its size and one frontage is not required to provide public open space. So it's to yeah. Commissioner Presley's point, that's the the plan was to get away from these little these little pieces, leftovers here and there, and to get something meaningful. Of a very astute observation, <laughs> Commissioner Bronson, because it was a huge problem. But um, thanks for bringing that up. Any other questions? Yes, I have a couple of staff questions. Um, one is just a clerical matter. Um, the staff report refers to the SH letter of August 5th and the SH letter is dated August 3rd. We're talking about the same thing. 
looking at the staff report right if, now. If we, we will, we will make sure that we have the correct date when okay. the resolution right. comes I imagine that's the date you received it, but the letter itself. Right, and that, and that may just be a typographical error. No, that's fine. Error, but that's yes, fine. We, we want to make that. sure that's correct yeah, before. But the we're talking about the same thing. That's the important yeah. thing for me. Yeah, and um, and your interpretation in that letter is that the state highway administration is announcing that it intends to enforce its 200 foot corner distance uh, um, lack of break in the road. Yes. Yes, yeah, they've indicated yeah. that the access okay. needs to be moved further east, and 200 feet is one of the metrics that they've. Because okay. I think that's like the there. big elephant in the corner of the room, right? Yes. In terms of the uh, sketch plan, right? That's correct. Okay. <laughs> and, and Mr. Mills, um, can you just eliminate for a minute our, our uh, legal relationship with SHA and. Um, I. Of course, we're all friends, um, <laughs> but I mean, we, we have no technical legal relationship other than the fact that uh, we do work with them on any number of things. Um, they consult with us, we consult with them. Uh, it depends on what it is. Uh, they come to us primarily for mandatory referrals, um, but they're, they're often, uh, they often comment on other specific regulatory projects and we do our best uh, to take their comments into account. Um, but it, it sort of depends on the circumstances and what, um, you know, statutorily speaking, there's nothing uh, formal other than mandatory referral, but there are a lot, there's a lot of consulting that goes back and forth uh, between both agencies. Let me know that question for a minute, which is regarding the access permit, it's their domain. Correct. Yes. Not, uh, not yes. Okay. And we, I mean, that, that, that is their call and we, we go with what their decision is. Yeah, and, and similarly for county roads, uh, DOT has final jurisdiction and DPS right-of-way within county right-of-way. Okay. Can I also add, uh, for the record, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director. Um, as Matt Mills noted, uh, we do uh, consult with SHA as well as MCDOT on a number of our plans, transportation plans as well. So in addition to the regulatory items that, such as what we're discussing today, uh, so, for example, uh, the countywide pedestrian master plan that we have uh, underway right now has some recommendations that would impact SHA. And so we have conversations with them ultimately to try to influence their decisions. Um, but that's another area where we have a touch point with that agency. Um, okay. Um, the Pearl Street parking lot that's been referred to it was item 194 here. Who owns that? Uh, that is owned by Our Lady of Lords Church and School, which is right, uh, indicated true. by 193 on, on yep. this image. Okay. Um, but that's their major parking facility for both the, the church and the school. Correct, yes. Yep. Okay. Um, and you've, you just referred to it as the possibility of being a park in the future. Correct. So I'd like to sort of place on the table the idea of a little more than common attention to the building frontage that faces that. Because it sounds like going down into the future, that's a public visibility place that isn't common in the back of a building. So I think, it, I think it's really important to look at the street frontage on USS Highway in terms of that treatment. But I, I kind of like to point that out as a, a place that a little bit more than, than common, you know, back of building treatment may be, may be relevant. The, um, there's, there's a condition at the end of things to be addressed at site plan and we'll make sure to add that. Okay. Um, what else do I have here? Uh, the, the two little houses uh, next to this on adjoining uh, property uh, seem to be like the surviving residential houses on, on that stretch of, of 410. 
Um, is there any consideration of uh, and re historic resources entangling those or? Not that I am aware of. Um, I believe they are just a property that has chosen not to, chosen not to advance beyond their current state. Right. Okay. Um, and then this is a, a very loose question, but it, it, I think it's important for the public uh, to consider, which is, you know, we've got BCC High School, very close. We've got the parochial school on the other side. Uh, is there any consideration that of safety applied to school movement uh, that's relevant to this site? So those are typically issues that are going to get looked at at preliminary and site plan when the traffic issues are looked at at a more granular level. Um, and we have a better idea of what the overall scope of, of this particular project is going to be. And you know, that's really when we're able to dig into those details and really evaluate things like that. But yeah, those are certainly considerations. Okay. Uh, I think that's all I've got for time. Okay. Uh, we have we have one uh, speaker signed up I, for I this. On I'm sorry. I think we had one more slide. Just the last oh. slide. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So I think we we've had a very thoughtful discussion, and I'll I'll wrap it up with this. Um, you know, so. Um, as has been indicated, staff has reviewed this application, and we believe it does meet the development standards of, uh, for approval of a sketch plan as, as presented in our staff report. Uh, the applicant has met all their noticing requirements. This did include a, a public pre-submission meeting, uh, the typical noticing mailings, sign on the property, et cetera. Uh, the property also, I mean, the project was also reviewed by the Bethesda Implementation Advisory Committee, one of the two or excuse me, the outfit that helps with the implementation of the Bethesda Downtown Sector Plan. Again, it was reviewed by the DAP uh, for architecture and design excellence. Uh, staff, we really are pleased to recommend the Planning Board approve Sketch Plan 320-220-120-44405 East West Highway with the binding elements as presented in the staff report on the conditions that we've noted. And I believe uh, Commissioner Hill had one condition that we would uh, like to supplement the report with. Thank okay. you. Um, I don't know if the applicant wants to say anything. Did they sign up to speak or you're just here for, if we have questions? Um, we'd like to say just a few, very few. Uh, Please go ahead please. and then we have one uh, person to testify. Thank you. So good afternoon, Pat Harris with Lurch Early and Brewer here on behalf of the applicant, Perseus TDC. With me are two representatives from Perseus, Michael Weiss and John Camera. We also have our architect, uh, Chris Huffer from SKNI, and then we have our other development team participating virtually. Staff did a fantastic job of briefing you on this project, um, so I won't go into any more detail, but we are available to answer questions. I will just make two comments, or three com brief comments. One is, um, in terms of the question about SHA and the position of the driveway, when we received the letter from the adjacent property owner, we actually uh, called for the meeting with SHA and DOT, and um, based on the configuration of the property, we expect that the driveway would get shifted, so that's not an issue, um, shifted to the east, as, as SHA would require. Um, in terms of school safety, as you could see from the site plan, we're making uh, significant improvements to the frontage of the property. Right now, it's a narrow sidewalk right next to the curb. So from a school pedestrian safety standpoint, I think this will be a, a significant improvement. 
And then finally, in terms of um, the letter that was received late yesterday, afternoon yesterday, I, staff did a good job of addressing that. And I would say just the one comment about the trees in the back of the property along the northern facade, um, that's a site plan issue, but that was always our expectation that we would be putting trees there. So with that, we're happy to answer any questions you may have. And also welcome, I should have said that at the very beginning. Thank you. <laughs> that, um, I would say, you know, for this applicant, staying on track in terms of their schedule was very, very important. And so I'm sure other applicants in the next couple of months would feel similarly. So we're very appreciative of your efforts. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Branson. Yeah, thank you. I just have one question. I looked at these uh, renderings. Um, and I'm just, I just want a little clarity. I applaud you for having the 15% MPDUs. Um, and, and that, um, that comes out to about 52 units, right? Okay, and then there's another spot where it's a mention of 11 um, units that um, exceed the requirements for the ADA. Okay, so so I'm wondering, is it is that 11 within the 52, or is that 11 additional? Which I I just want to understand what number we should be thinking about. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be kind of a, a mixture of the two. So the enhanced ADA units are part of the public benefits points. Uh, so they're going to be type A uh, design units, so for enhanced accessibility for handicapped uses. Um, usually, in, in the case here, we do an equal split between the percentages of the MPDUs and the market rate units. No, I'm sorry. I'm not sure you really answered the question. There, there's, there's about 52 mm -hmm of the MPDUs, right? There's 11 of these enhanced ADA. I'm asking, is the 11 a part of the 52, or is the 11 in addition to the 52? It'll be part of the 52. Okay. So, but not all 11, right. so it'll be a portion of that. Okay, thanks. Yes. All right, thank you. Um, again, we have one uh, speaker, uh, Amanda Farber from the East Bethesda Citizens Association. I believe she's on Teams. If you could go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. I'm actually on um, on a call. Can you hear me okay? Yes, perfect. Okay, great. Uh, yes, my name is Amanda Farber. I'm a resident of East Bethesda and a member of the Bethesda Implementation Advisory Committee. And I'm here today on behalf of the East Bethesda Citizens Association Executive Committee. Uh, and yes, we also had submitted written testimony and um, thank the staff for addressing some of the issues we raised in that testimony. I wanna say thank you to the board, staff and applicants for the opportunity to speak. And also that um, uh, we welcome and invite anyone for a tour anytime of what's going on in downtown Bethesda because we've got a lot going on. Um, I wanted to start by highlighting some of the positives of this project. Uh, we, we very much appreciate that the proposed project will provide for significant streetscape improvements along East West Highway including relocating the utilities underground and reducing the curb cuts. This will result in a safer, more pleasant pedestrian route along the north side of East West Highway. And yes, for anyone who has been in the area when schools are in session, 
uh, you know how much this is needed. And yes, we did request that more attention be paid to providing needed tree canopy and landscaping along the back of the building, which actually faces BCC High School and the East Bethesda neighborhood. Um, and I'm thrilled that the um, applicant plans to add additional landscaping when it comes to site plan. And I would like to then second Commissioner Hill's um, suggestion that the side of the building also receive attention if it is gonna be facing a future park. Uh, next, I just wanted to um, maybe ask for further clarification on two of the questions that were raised by neighbors. Um, first, just a little background. So the top two overarching goals of the 2017 Bethesda Downtown Plan were parks and open space and affordable housing. So in the five and a half years since the plan was adopted, we have seen the construction and approval of over 6.8 square feet of development. Much of that's been residential and there's even more proposed. What we have not seen has been the actual delivery of the new public parks outlined in the plan. So there's noted efforts by park and planning staff and the to move them forward uh, including this morning with lots 10 and 24, which we're very supportive of and excited about. But clearly there's a lot more work to go and there's more work to go in this particular location with regards to this 0.3 acre Bethesda Chevy Chase East neighborhood green park, uh, which, is, which is recommended here. So the staff indicated that the project will not provide any land towards the neighborhood green but it will provide the undetermined, as of now undetermined financial contribution towards the implementation of it. So we are as a neighborhood asking for clarification as to where realistically uh, staff, the board, parks expect this amenity to be provided. Because obviously we wanna see it realized and not just see it be a green dot on, on paper in the plan. And if it is envisioned on the Our Lady of Lords site, um, then we would ask if there's been any communication with them as a property owner, that that is the intention there. Um, so that's a, that's a question. And then second, um, yeah, neighbors asked for clarification about the plan language regarding MCPS exploring expansion um, to the adjacent parcels. And um, it sounds like that did not necessarily happen for this particular uh, property, but our question is what is the process in the future for other adjacent parcels? Um, should that become an issue? Because BCC is actually, um, uh, it is considered uh, to be towards the top of its utilization and it's considered to, um, be a relatively crowded school on a on a very small site um, in terms of the school footprint and and the availability of fields. So that's um, so it's basically okay. some some positives for the project, some room for improvement, and some questions. Uh, th uh, thank you for your testimony. If uh, staff can uh, try to answer some of that a little bit, uh, certainly. And I think I'll I'll first. Um, defer uh, to Henry Coppola from the Parks Department to sort of talk about what some potential um, uh, 
what the process might be. I think, you know, we are very early in this process. This is um, one of the, uh, I think this is probably the second development project to come forward in this um, in this uh, Pearl District. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, I, it's, as we've said, land is expensive, has been identified, the school is using this parking lot. Um, so I think, th as I hope that the chair will appreciate at this point, we don't know um, exactly how we're gonna move forward, but we, you know, we're a, a planning department, we've got park planning, and we, you know, when we get the opportunity to lay in some foundation, we do that. Um, I think that's a short version and Henry can expound. Yeah, thank you. As in, for the record, Henry Coppola, uh, Montgomery Parks Park Planning Stewardship Division. I'm our development review coordinator. I think Elsa did a great <laughs> job um, touching on that and throughout the, the staff presentation. Um, the sort of specifics of this site and kind of the block with Pearl Street and East West Highway and the high school make it tricky to be able to know exactly where we're going to be able to fit in the third of the acre park. We're, we're working to figure out what might work best um, based on the way that the, the applications are coming in um, and uh, figuring out sort of the specific locations that will create uh, the best, most usable park and, and that will help realize the, the vision of the plan. And this, this approach that we're taking with using proportional contributions from the applications are, uh, we, we believe will give us the most flexibility to figure that out and to have the best chance to, to get a great park in here. Thank you. Um, I, I think my predecessors have said, uh, planning is uh, random steps in a general direction. And, and it was by the nature of your, of your accepting uh, the a park uh, PIP, it, by accepting funds instead of uh, a land on the ground, by the nature that you need to solve this in the future. But certainly you need to solve it in the future. Thank you. Any other I, questions? I'm sorry, just one, one other thing to, to Ms. Farber's points about the school. Um, I don't, and I'm sure you've gotten, I'm sure this was explained to you this morning, but every year MCPS looks at utilization for all of the schools in the county and there's a utilization payment. And so for the for this fiscal year, Bethesda Chevy Chase is, um, is not in, uh, at the capacity level, they are approaching it. Um, you know, it, depending on when this project comes through for preliminary plan, they will either be looking at a, utilization payment for Bethesda Chevy Chase, or they won't. Um, and, you know, MCPS is, uh, Montgomery County Public Schools is uh, part of the development review process. They're part of the development review uh, committee, um, and they have not expressed interest uh, to staff, or I believe to the applicant, uh, to acquire the property at this time. So we are moving forward uh, as the applicant is suggesting. Thank you so much. I'm going to take these answers back to the community. We actually have a neighborhood meeting coming up, so this will be very helpful. Okay, thank you. I think we're ready to entertain a motion with the- Can, can I uh, have a discussion with the commissioners for just a moment about what that motion is? Um, having heard all the testimony, and I'd like to come back to my comment about uh, mixed use. And that is, uh, I'm concerned about this issue too that um, Commissioner Branson and Commissioner Presley commented on, um, because I see it as kind of the faltering of smart growth. If we, um, I, I think of mixed growth as a three-legged stool, and if we don't have one of those legs of the stool, it doesn't stand up. And um, 
what I would like to suggest to the, my fellow commissioners uh, is the possibility of adding an additional condition. This would be under uh, Section 8 for future coordination for preliminary site plan, which is that we might consider making a future condition, making a minimum for retail space here. Um, but I think that that's not something that is it, the potential to do that may be appropriate to reference in the sketch plan, but I don't think of the sketch plan detail itself. And I just wanted to uh, present that as a possibility and see if there was a discussion about that. Can I, I was going to say, I agree with your sentiment. I just wonder, and this will go back to the staff, if the, the regulations and the uh, procedures under BOS may prevent us from doing that. I, I heard staff tell us that that was in our prerogative. Okay, great. Well, can we have an answer on whether uh, any kind of uh, restrictions on FAR to commercial use can be made at, at the site plan if it was not made at, at, at sketch one? Um, I believe you could do that at site plan uh, regardless of whether or not it was done at sketch. All right. Uh, Can I make a recommendation yes. related to that condition? I would recommend, given um, as um, Mr. Heisel McCoy noted earlier, marking conditions can make it such that uh, sort of expectations in terms of the amount of retail can be very tricky, especially considering that these projects are not going to be built tomorrow. I would recommend mm -hmm. if the board is interested in making sure that uh, there's at least an attempt to look at possible retail as part of uh, the, the final plans for this site that instead of um, making a condition a minimal amount of retail that you make that sort of give us the flexibility to explore that uh, or to mm -hmm. express a preference that there be some type of retail in a final program rather than making it something more like a requirement. That was my intention in putting it in, in item eight of the, because okay. I understand those to be future looking things to the site plan, yes. the preliminary plan, and yes, this does need more looking. I'm not suggesting that we judge it today. Okay. Well, right. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll also add that I think one of the issues in Bethesda is that retail has been too spread out and has failed for sort of lack yeah. of, of tenants. And one of the things that the Bethesda downtown sector plan did, we hired an economic consultant to look at um, sort of where retail made sense. I think you know, in the you know in in the early you know, two thousands. I think you know we wanted everybody to have ground floor retail because of course it makes sense. Activating uses. I think what we learned is just as you know every property providing 20% as public open space doesn't mean you get good retail, doesn't mean you get good space. And so we moved away from sort of a blanket approach to a more targeted approach. But I think having a condition that sort of asks us to come back and speak more specifically to that at site plan is a, an excellent suggestion. Okay, are, are we ready for a motion? I'll make that motion since I seem to have two conditions that you I'm have, adding. You have two conditions. <laughs> so, Mr. Okay. Chair, I move that we approve sketch plan uh, 3202120 for 4405 East West Highway with the addition of two conditions. One of those would be 8K, um, which would speak to uh, more attention to the architectural treatment of the built in frontage that's visible from Pearl Street, and 8J, which would ask for future consideration of uh, consideration of uh, um, requiring uh, retail set aside. 
Second. Second. Uh, I'll want to discuss just one aspect of that, and that's that's not to suggest that we're making a minimum, or uh, at, at least at th at this point, uh, I've been through too many projects that have vacant retail on the bottom floor, and economics at the time of site plan will kind of dictate what conditions we put. So I hope the applicant wouldn't read that as a as an absolute minimum. Yeah. I, and I agree. You know, here's here's my here's my concern is that um, I think people well we shouldn't use the term mixed use if that's not what we mean. It's just about that simple. And so I understand that for whatever reason, mixed use may be more attractive and more palatable um, to the community. But if if that's not real, then we need to stop saying it. You know, I'm just that that's really kind of all there is to it for me. Um, that um, that people have a right uh, to know what's going on and to receive information that is really as true as we know it at that point. And if we're saying mixed use and we don't really mean that, then we got to stop saying that. that that's, that's all, you know, I mean, I, I understand market realities. I understand that you can't always do what, what you thought you could do. I understand all that. And heaven knows nobody wants a bunch of, you know, junky looking stores at the bottom of their building. I, I get that part. But if if we, if if the county is creating a preference for mixed use, knowing that um, that it may not things market conditions just may not work out that way, then when I say we, I mean the county need, needs to be a little bit more honest about what's okay and what's not. That that's that's really you know my my big thing here. I'm Thank sure, you. I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we name zones, mixed use or not mixed use. But uh, it, it is a phrase used in the zoning ordinance when when it provides the opportunity uh, to do a variety of uses. Uh, so I'm sure we'll talk about this more. Mr. Right, Chair, I have um, a motion I, on I, the floor. I uh, I invite you to offer different wording for condition, my proposed condition AJ, if you I, choose I think to, it's satisfactory. Um, I think it leaves enough discretion. Is this, does the staff have a job? Well, and you'll, so I, I don't, you know, we don't have uh, language to provide you at the moment, but when it comes back to you as a resolution, you'll be able to review the language at, at that time. Okay. I'm confident this room understands what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> if I could just make maybe one suggestion, which is a distinction between non-residential and residential. So instead of saying retail, non-residential, because there are other mixed uses that mm -hmm. are retail that may accommodate that space. Uh, Miss Commissioner Presley, go ahead. I just said that that seems to make sense because it is still mixed used and it is confusing if we're putting in the public's mind that there's going to be retail and then there isn't. So I, I lean towards that suggestion. Would the maker of the motion? Uh, Certainly, let's replace the word retail with commercial. No, or non-residential. Non-residential. Non non non-residential. It is in my motion. Excellent. Okay. With that as the amendment, uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 Uh, 
Uh, it's approved. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your patience, too, on getting to the board. Uh, I think minutes, if that's okay. Thank you. We'll be in recess until one uh, twelve. <laughs>
This is item nine on November uh, 3rd planning board meeting. It's a mandatory referral of uh, the Heritage Triangle Trail phase one, uh, Dr. Bird Road uh, at Nordwood Road shared use path. Uh, if staff is ready, please proceed. Great. Thank you, Chair. Uh, for the record, my name is Jason Sartori. I am the Chief of the Countywide Planning and Policy Division here at the Planning Department. And uh, before we begin, uh, on behalf of our division, I wanted to, to welcome you all and thank you for your service to our department, to the commission, and to the county in general. Um, we uh, will come before you. We really appreciate your, your, your dedication and your, your service to us and that we, you'll be getting to see a lot of us as we'll have plenty of opportunities to come before you over the coming weeks and, and months. Uh, in the meantime, I did want to take a few moments before we begin with this item to explain what it is that we're here for today, uh, what a mandatory referral is. Okay, so this is a unique authority that the commission has. It's granted to the commission by the state of Maryland uh, in section 20 of the state's land use article. Uh, I'm not going to read the full text of the Maryland Code to you, but I will have it displayed here on a few slides so that it's easily available uh, in the future for board members for your reference. Essentially, a mandatory referral is the process by which a public agency is legally required to come before the board to receive comments about public projects that they are pursuing. Uh, the thought is that the review comes early enough in the design process such that the comments and feedback from the board can be incorporated into the final design and final project. Uh, this first section of the code here, section 301, is what provides the groundwork for the mandatory referral requirement. And I would highlight that it includes the construction, the widening, narrowing, extension, relocation, or abandonment of a road or public way, uh, as well as other buildings and structures. So the, the next section of code includes some clarifications about the board's jurisdiction with regard to these mandatory referrals, including clear language that the Board of Education is also subject to the mandatory referral review, uh, which would mean that it applies to all school construction projects. Next. Okay, so now technically, these public projects are not regulatory in nature. So the planning board does not have the authority to officially approve or deny the project the way you can with a private uh, development project. However, uh, if the board has comments or disapproves of the project or certain aspects of the project, you are required to provide those comments officially to the applicant, uh, which is the public agency building the project, uh, through an official communication. The important thing to note is that your comments are strictly advisory uh, as it pertains to the mandatory referral. Now, when we transmit the board's written comments, we do so with a request that the applicant respond in kind. And uh, the mandatory referral before you today is for a side path in the only Sandy Spring area of the county. Uh, and the applicant is the Montgomery County Department of Transportation. And we have a long history of working with MCDOT on projects like this. And we will oftentimes, as staff, work with them in advance of it coming before the board. And so they've already received feedback in many cases to, uh, from, from our staff. Uh, but this is an opportunity for, for the, you, the board, to provide feedback to the applicant as well. I do have a question because sure. I understand the mandatory review process you've described, but I'm a little unclear. You referred to us as the board, so you're referring to our planning mission, not our park mission, or both. 
I think uh, the, the state refers to the refers to the commission, but it's the board. It's the individual board, and I'm, I'm looking at Mr. Mills from legal. The um, this in this section of the code is actually under the planning board, the county planning board uh, portion of the code. Unfortunately, this statute is, uh, as we like to say, inartfully worded. Um, <laughs> And so it, it uses words like disapproval, yeah. even though you're not actually right. approving or disapproving anything. But uh, to, your, to answer your question for uh, a project such as this, it is, yes, it is the, the, the county planning board's authority. It's just uh, coincidental that we also have an MNNCPC property that's involved in this as well. As well yes, okay. it, that, that actually is pure coincidence, <laughs> correct. Right. So I will say that, again, MCDOT is uh, very good at being responsive to the comments from the board, and they will uh, do typically do their best to incorporate those comments because, again, it comes early enough in the process. And when they can't, they'll be clear in their response about why they can't incorporate the comments that or the, the changes that you are recommending. Um, and I think that if you ask them today, they would also tell you that they, 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 they see a lot of value and benefit in, in having this process. One of those is the fact that this is another opportunity for members of the public to provide feedback on the project as well. And so although for the item today, my understanding is we don't have anyone signed up, it is technically a public hearing and there is an opportunity for people to, to provide comments and feedback to you. Next. So the next section of code requires that the board review the mandatory referral project within 60 days of the application submission. Uh, for this particular mandatory referral, we were scheduled to bring this to the board two weeks ago, which would have been within the 60 days, but understandably, we were not able to do that. Uh, and uh, MCDOT graciously understood and uh, agreed to the longer review period in this case. And then finally, uh, this last section of code requires that the commission adopt uniform standards of mandatory referral review. Uh, these are largely guidelines that uh, help uh, applicants through the process. Uh, and these standards are occasionally reviewed and updated by our legal team. And uh, after getting feedback from planning staff and other public agencies, and in fact, we have an update that has been prepared by Mr. Mills uh, from our legal staff that he'll be bringing to the full commission shortly. And uh, if you've got questions about that or additional information can be provided in the future on that too. So uh, next slide. Now, uh, while a mandatory referral is not regulatory in nature, uh, we do go through a pretty thorough process of reviewing these applications very much in, in ways very similar to what we would do for a development application. Uh, for transportation mandatory referrals, uh, in particular, we review the project's consistency with our adopted master plans and other uh, other state and county guidelines, including our Complete Streets Design Guide. We also review the project from an engineering design perspective and for consistency with environmental guidelines. And when applicable, the project is reviewed by Montgomery Parks and our historic preservation team. Uh, in the case of today's item, as has already been noted, uh, this project actually does impact both parkland and historic property. So we will have some conversation around that as well. And finally, you may ask, who leads these mandatory referral reviews? Uh, a transportation project like the one that's brought before you today is reviewed by the Planning Department's Countywide Planning and Policy Division. However, we will collaborate with the applicable staff from uh, the staff from the applicable area team. Uh, the review of other projects involving buildings, or even if you have a public uh, property that uh, an agency is looking to dispose of, that is led by the applicable area team division. 
So that would include things like schools, libraries, rec centers, parking garages, uh, and even park facilities. Uh, now, I've been saying that these uh, mandatory referrals are not regulatory in nature, um, and that you can't officially deny an application and prevent a project from going forward, but there are a few caveats to that, as you would assume. Um, in some cases, the project may require a forest conservation plan or a water quality plan or a park construction permit or a historic area work permit. Now, some of those things don't fall under your jurisdiction, but the forest conservation plan and the water quality plans, they do. And um, when those are involved in a plan, the county cannot issue the appropriate permits to move forward without your approval of those plans. Next slide. And so that's it. Before I hand it off, I want to see if there were any other questions about mandatory referrals in general. Seeing none, then um, I will uh, hand it off to Mr. Stephen Aldrich. Uh, Mr. Aldrich has been with the planning department for about six years, a little more than six years now. Uh, he's a civil engineer by training, and he's also one of our most experienced transportation planners in the department. He leads the review of, uh, of many of our transportation mandatory referrals. Uh, he also conducts an annual review of the county's transportation capital improvements program. Uh, he has also led updates to our master plan of highways and transitways, and uh, he worked collaboratively with MCDOT to lead up our award-winning Complete Streets Design Guide. I have to always remember to add that in there. Um, and uh, recently served as project manager for our access management study. So with that, I'll hand it off to Mr. Aldrich. Good afternoon, glad to be here. Um, I'd like to introduce um, at this table uh, to present with me, um, starting on my left is Dan Bruchart from Historic Preservation. And then on my right is Jackie Hoban and Doug Stevens from Montgomery Parks. Um, we also have Josh Penn from up County Planning Environmental. He's in the room as well. And if we have some environmental questions related to this review. So quick present, uh, outline of what we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna give you an introduction to the project. Um, we're then gonna go, I'm gonna go through some of the design elements that we looked at just reviewing the project. Um, and then we'll talk about master plan conformity um, environmental analysis and findings, um, again, historic preservation, parklands, and then moving, moving to staff review and recommendations for the planning board to consider. So to start with this project, the Heritage Triangle Trail Phase 1 Side Path Project uh, is being proposed by Montgomery County Department of Transportation. Um, their designer is RK&K. With us here today is Dan Sheridan, who is the design section chief for Montgomery County, DOT, and Colin Hayward, who is the consultant project manager for our K&K. And if there are questions from the board after the presentation, um, they'd be happy to come up and, and be involved in that discussion. Um, the project limits of this are on Maryland 182, which is a combination of Dr. Bird Road for a certain extent, and then Norwood Road for another extent. Um, and the total distance of the project in two sections is 3,100 feet. Um, these are 35% design plans that have been reviewed as part of this submission. And the plan is that this project would move towards construction beginning in the fall of 2023. Um, on the screen, it should, just shows you uh, sort of a, a you know, look of map of that whole area. You can see the project areas are shown in red. 
Um, and, and so I think what's really neat about this is that you can see that, that there are areas in between shown in green and in orange um, that already exist. There are side paths or shared use paths um, in those sections. Um, and you can also see on the, the maps uh, various land use um, activities that, that will be connected by this, this facility. Um, and some of those, including the Red Door Store and Woodlawn Manor, um, are, are parks properties. Um, so, you know, I think that's part of the overall context of, of the Heritage Triangle Trail, um, which I'll show you on the next slide. Um, this is a pretty innovative concept from Montgomery County DOT, um, you know, really, uh, you know, trying to implement some major elements of the Bicycle Master Plan. Uh, but it's, you know, looking at a variety of funding sources and design methods to uh, really connect these communities um, to the historic cultural resources in the area. Um, as you can see on this, uh, this graphic, um, the projects in orange are actually being designed by, uh, by SHA. Um, and I think there might actually be, there's certainly there's some county funding uh, participation in that as well. Um, but the idea is to create a complete network to, to really provide better pedestrian and bicycle connectivity um, to this area in the only Ashton Sandy Spring area. So um, Maryland 182, um, right now, it's a two-lane, um, and we, we classify this as a country connector in the master plan of highways and transitways. This road carries over 12,000 vehicles per day. Um, and that, you know, I think before COVID, it was around that point, and I think it's now reached back to that point as well. Um, the existing side path that does exist in certain parts of this corridor along both Dr. Bird and Ord Road um, is, is, is generally uh, 10, foot, 10 feet wide. This side path, however, does not have lighting. Um, some of that might have been an oversight from uh, the previous board because the Sandy School Friends um, site plan came back, I think, in 2020. Um, and at that time, uh, although lighting has always been part of um, the purview of the board and as part of the master plans, it was not approved um, at that time. Um, the, there, the, there's a planned bikeway in the, the approved bicycle master plan, which is a side path on the west side, which is essentially the, what this project is trying to complete. Um, so now I'm going to take you through some of the design elements, and I usually start with the cross-section and then quickly go through the plan view. Um, so for the, the northern portion or the Dr. Bird portion of the road, uh, we're, we're looking at a, a generally a 10-foot side path um, with a 6-foot grass buffer separating the side path from the road. In some places along Dr. Bird, there's some curbing, um, and I think that will transition later on in the project to, to more of a shoulder section. And as you will note, the lighting shown on the illustrative, and I'll talk about the lighting issue in a, in a little, little more in detail a little bit later. Um, looking at the plan view, this is starting out at the intersection of um, only Sandy Spring Road and Dr. Bird Road, um, where it's going to connect to existing sidewalk, side, sidewalk or side path facilities at that intersection um, and continue along the north or west side of, of Dr. Bird Road. And you'll also notice, it may be hard to see, but in the vicinity map view, I've tried to identify where along the project that's located as well. Um, the cross-section through this section is pretty consistent. Um, the the six-foot uh, minimum and the 10-foot side path, which actually are our standards, 
um, are are conformed to. Um, so there, there are very few, very technical comments in terms of that. Um, and as we move to the end, uh, tying back into the existing side path, the buffer gets a little larger because the existing side path and the adjacent property is, is set back further. So moving along to the southern section uh, on Norwood Road, um, this cross section is quite a bit different. One, because Norwood has been designed in more of a, a, a as a country country road, um, so it's an it's a um, it is a uh, not a curbed curbed road. It has shoulders. Um, they're typically grass uh, graded shoulders. Um, and on this project, the cross the typical section that we're showing here um, is really shown along the Woodlawn uh, facility. And has, this was developed uh, with a lot of input from, um, from Montgomery Parks and particularly the park police um, to make sure that, um, you know, the, the, the woodlawn is, is where the, the park police keep their horses. Um, so there was a concern about folks using the side path and, uh, you know, interacting with the horses um, who are, you know, who, who are specifically there, you know, uh, you know to, to graze and, um, and, you know, so to, to try to minimize the interaction as possible, um, they worked very carefully in developing a, a two-fence system um, so that folks who are using the path are sep physically separated from um, the horses. Um, what I do want to point out about this cross-section is you'll see the dash lines just adjacent to, um, just adjacent to the roadway section shows existing utility poles. Um, there are several along the existing road. This project is not moving these or eliminating these. Um, it will continue to be an issue, um, particularly along Norwood Road, where the road is is um, is not is an open section facility. Um, for this for this section, um, you know, again, the project sticks with the ten foot side path and generally a six foot um, buffer. Um, and I'll just go through this real quickly. Um, that, that there's, a, there's a few, um, throughout through the project, there are a few places where the side path crosses some driveways. Uh, that's certainly a concern, making sure that that's designed adequately. Um, and then the side path terminates um, at the intersection of, of Norwood Road with Lay Hill and Ednor. Um, and I think very appropriately provides connections over to the other side so that, again, folks can connect from exist other existing facilities, um, certainly, certainly on um, Lay Hill Road. So as we looked at uh, the, you know, the design elements, I think what we found is the 10-foot side path, um, you know, it meets AASHTO bike design uh, guidance, certainly for, for shared use paths, um, and it's consistent with the Complete Streets design guide uh, with the default width of 10, 10 feet. Um, the six-foot white grass buffer also meets the complete streets design guide default width of six feet as well. Um, the posted speed limit along um, both both roads is 35 miles an hour, uh, and this is also consistent with the complete streets uh, target speeds, which for this type of facility, a 40 mile an hour target speed is is, is established as default for this kind of road. So the existing posting speed limit uh, it appears reasonable for this type of uh, type of road. Um, what you'll find when we come with many of these projects, we're often asking for lower. Um, this is one location where 
Um, this speed limit seems to, to match the surrounding area and the roadway classification. Um, as I mentioned, the existing utility poles are located very close to the road edge on the east side on Norwood. Um, this is really a Vision Zero safety concern. Um, not that there have been um, any um, utility pole impacts within the past five years, um, but I couldn't guarantee maybe over 20. Maybe there have been. Um, it's always going to be a concern on a rural um, roadway, um, and with higher speeds, though, those kind of impacts can be um, can be quite hazardous. Um, can, I, can I inject a question just because? Really, um The concern is cars hitting the utility poles or bicycles hitting the utility pole? Uh, In this one, I think it's really cars hitting utility poles. Which is kind of unrelated to the path we're putting in with a six-foot buffer, right? It it is. It is. Um, When we do reviews, I think um, what we try to do is is ensure that the the cross-section that's being provided um, can try to make the, the roadway facility as safe as possible. And if there are elements that are being moved or disrupted, then, um, you know, maybe a little bit more onus is on the project to actually try to fix them. In this case, the road is staying where it is, um, and we're providing facilities for bikes and pedestrians that meet our standards offset. So it's it's something that's that isn't really a project impact. We're just identifying it as something that long-term we would like to see um, the county and, you know, this is a state road, maybe the state, um, look to relocate those utility poles at some point um, because they, they are, um, you know, if you want to get to, if, with Vision Zero, if you want to get to zero, you need to really look at, um, you know, sort of the forgiving roadside approach. And that this will, these poles will always be a hazard. Um, the last item we wanted to mention is that lighting will be provided by the county DOT. Um, for not just the side path sections that we're talking about, but ultimately even the unlit sections of this road, but that it, it may not be included with this current design project. Um, one, of the, one of the problems I think that occurred here is that because um, half, more, probably more than half of the, of the road today is not lit, um, the, um, you know, the, the, the sense of lighting just the new sections it does, doesn't quite make sense, and so um, you know, and so what, what um, we've asked DOT through coordination with Parks is to look at is seeing if, if it can be added to this project at a later phase, and if not um, done done at a later date, um, and so at a minimum um, within the rope the thirty one hundred feet conduit would be provided for the lighting, um, so that, that that could be provided at a later date. Um, it is a concern, and certainly when um, when side paths and sidewalks are provided, um, providing adequate lighting is is pretty necessary. Uh, I did just want to show um, you know sort of one photo that we along Woodlawn that shows um, some the utility poles, um, and you know from the staff report, um, we had a pretty great rendering I think that showed how these existing fence would be moved and the, the two fences that would replace it, which I, I've not replicated in this presentation. So from a transportation uh, master plan conformity perspective, we always look at conformance of transportation projects to um, our master plans and design guidelines. Um, and I always bring this, um, which um, 
certainly you can you can get it electronically on the website, but it's it's a pretty important document, and there are a lot of things that we're going to be doing, including bringing this document back to your attention, um, hopefully uh, at the latest, you know, sometime early next year, um, because we have some changes that have been approved by the county council to go into this uh, with a with a recent adoption of uh, modification of Chapter Forty Nine. Um, so as we looked at the project, uh, you know, the, the Master Plan of Highways and Transways recommends this road as a two-lane county connector with a, a very wide 120-foot right-of-way. Um, and per the Chapter 49 recently approved changes, um, we're, the planning, planning department will be doing a uh, almost immediate translation of the Master Plan of Highways to the complete streets, street classifications. Um, consistent with the Complete Streets Design Guide. Um, so the, the project is very consistent with that. In addition, the Bicycle Master Plan recommends the side path along the north side of, of Maryland 108, only Sandy Spring Road, and Lay Hill Road. And just real quickly, I just wanted to show you, you know, on the Planning Board website, um, there is a section um, and, a, and, a, and a web resource where you can look at the the current uh, master plan of highways, which uses the old classifications, um, and that will be undergoing revision. Um, you know, within the next, uh, I'd say within a month, it would be it'll be updated. Um, in addition, we are um, we are working at um, at revising it. Um, we already have a, an internal department Arc ArcGIS app that we're we're using to. To, to make those translations, um, but we are using the approved bill 2422, which has a whole section on translations from the old street types to the complete streets street types. And I just blew it up so you can see here that the section of Dr. Bird Road uh, used to be classified as a major highway. Um, it's now going to be classified as a country connector. And then finally, uh, also on the, on the planning, planning department's website, there's a whole section on the bicycle master plan, which was approved in 2018 uh, with, with a, a, pretty, a pretty useful uh, bicycle network map. Um, and, you know, any citizen can, can go to that and look up to find out what is the actual master plan bike facility, which in this case is a side path um, on the west or north side of the road. So moving along to environmental, uh, we, we typically look at um, conformance of, of projects to our environmental guidelines and regulations. Uh, and I think the key here is that um, this project is exempt from submission of forest conservation plan, basically because it's a road project. Um, and that's under section 22A-5E. Um, and while it's exempt, there are some requirements under 22A-9 that they still have to comply with. Um, we occasionally will have projects that come in that um, do have forest conservation plans and, and as Jason mentioned, uh, water quality plans in the up county region. Um, and for those, we typically um, ask for the regulatory action first, followed by the mandatory referral. Um, from the environmental side, uh, Staff has determined that the applicant has minimized the LOD, the limits of the disturbance, uh, the amount of for, forest clearing, 
um, you know, it is, it's, a, it's a pretty small, pretty small amounts. And that, you know, based on that, the applicant is not required to provide reforestation. Um, they have submitted a tree save plan, which is, is a requirement in conjunction with this process to show how the impacts have been minimized. Um, and they identified the remove, proposed removal of three specimen trees. Now I'm going to ask Dan Bruckhart to talk through the Historic Preservation Review. Uh, good afternoon, Dan Bruckert, uh, County Historic Preservation. Much like you as the board are, are planning and parks, this is an instance where the historic preservation resources are also parks resources. So um, we're teaming up for a lot of those. So there are, there are three designated uh, sites on the Master Plan for Historic Preservation in uh, the project area. Uh, two of them, Woodlawn and the Holland Store and House or Red Door Store are at the south end of the project, and both of those are park sites. And then the Dr. Bird House is located in the northern section. It's actually on the other side of the street, so there won't be an impact on there. Um, the Maryland Historical Trust required uh, some phase one archaeology to be done in the affected area. They determined that phase two was not warranted and no further archaeological investigation was required. Also, um, their determination was that the work would not impact uh, potential National Register nominated properties. So historic preservation staff, uh, because the work is going to occur within uh, designated master plan sites, DOT will need to get a historic area work permit uh, issued by the county's Historic Preservation Commission, and I'm happy to talk about that if you'd like. Um, before any work can begin, um, we encourage them to do that as soon as they're ready. I would also encourage them to come in with their lighting proposal so that can be approved all at once. And should the lighting um, come at a later date, it's already been approved. So historic preservation staff fully supports this. Um, we think that the impact on the master plan sites is de minimis. Uh, also, this didn't make the slide or the staff report, but in, in 2019, the Historic Preservation, along with the, um, the Planning Department, organized a heritage bicycle tour that uh, included stops at Woodlawn. That was the, the furthest stop down, and we rode this um, back north. And depending on your comfort of riding within traffic, it was either less than comfortable or an exercise in abject terror. So um, personally, I'm, I'm really excited to see this happening. And um, everyone was safe. Everyone made it back to, to Brookville in one piece, so we're, we're happy for that. Um, and, and I'm happy to talk about the programming at the park sites, but I think my park colleagues can do a much better job of that than I can. And next, we'll have parks talk about their process. Great, thank you. Um, Doug Stevens with Montgomery Parks. Um, I lead our concept and environmental review process for parks. Um, so like everybody else here today, I wanted to kind of explain what that process is so that you guys have an understanding of what we're asking you uh, to do. So um, most projects that are going to be from an external agency on parkland, um, having an impact on parkland, um, altering parkland in any way, are going to go through a, re a review process um, that begins with concept review, um, oftentimes involves a mandatory referral and always requires a park construction permit so that the, that applicant can actually then do their work on parkland. Usually, um, the folks that we're working with are DOT, like we are today, or SHA, or WSSC, Washington Gas, other you know, um, 
government agencies or utilities, things like that. Um, we work on this, pro the, the, this process applies to projects of all sizes. So um, it may be a very small like utility connection needs to, you know, come into maybe like Sligo Creek Parkway or something. And literally it's gonna take, you know, half a day to do that work to the managed lanes project, which is a, you know, federal project, multi-year type of thing. So any, it really any size of impact is gonna run through our, our review process. Um, what that what that looks like, like I mentioned, there's a concept review, that's the initial phase. So we wanna start with the applicant um, as early as possible before they have really designed plans. Um, we wanna weigh in on, you know, even where they're gonna be doing the survey for these projects. So really we wanna get on really early to understand understand this kind of the scope and the scale and, and begin to understand early on what those impacts to parkland might be. Um, then if, it, if the mandatory referral is required for that project, that would happen at, like we said, around the 30, 35%. Um, and we would bring to you, like we are going to today, any park issues that we see with that project um, and present that to you and then ultimately any mitigation for those impacts. After the mandatory referral process, um, then they can apply for our park construction permit, which is kind of a more technical and more uh, detailed review of a, of a project. Um, so that's gonna happen kind of at the 60 and 90% stages of design. Um, and then we will approve those plans and grant that uh, park permit. And then we assign a park inspector um, to be sure that everything you know that we've reviewed and all the, our conditions that we've agreed to are then actually being implemented when that construction is occurring. Um, we use what is called a policy for parks, which is in the pros plan. It's kind of our guidance on for what we're looking at in this review process. Um, it's in the in the current pros plan. It's in the appendix seven. If you want any more information about that, and obviously we can we can provide more information as well. Um, if you have any questions, but basically the way we approach these projects is first to avoid any impacts to parkland if at all possible, then to minimize those impacts when possible, um, and then if you know once those two things are done first, then potentially mitigate for those impacts or get compensation for those impacts depending on which one is appropriate. Um, and again, it really depends on the scale of of the project and the, and the scope of that project. Um, but we we never jump right to the mitigate and compensate. We always focus, you know, very heavily on avoiding parkland if at all costs and minimizing. And sometimes with a project that does require, you know, um, redesign or doing more research about what's possible, and sometimes it does, it does involve more cost. Um, but you know, that's our we are tasked with stewarding parkland, and so you know that's what, how we approach that um, first off. The role that you guys have when we bring something a, a park impact to you. Um, through this manager referral process is you're functioning as landowners of parkland essentially. Um, and so with these non-park uses of parkland, um, creating, you know, expanding a road or doing something um, with a utility um, requires your approval um, that it, you know, by granting that approval, you're saying that there is a greater public benefit to allowing that to happen and allowing that non-park use of parkland to move forward. Um, again, usually that's gonna be with some type of mitigation or compensation for that work, but but we do require your approval of that. And so that's where in these mandatory referrals, um, you know, the conditions in your approval are binding um, for our review process to move forward. So whatever, whatever you all, if you approve the project or you have any conditions in addition to what we may present to you, um, those would be then enforced throughout that park construction permit process and then obviously through the construction of that. So 
that's, um, you know, that's kind of the importance when there's a park component to a mandatory referral is that you guys function as landowners of that and provide that ultimate approval. So um, that's all I have. Happy to answer any questions or provide you know, more information about that offline if necessary. Um, Jackie will give you the actual information about this DOT project. Thanks, Doug. For the record, Jackie Hoban with Montgomery Parks. Um, as Doug mentioned, I'm gonna be walking you through the park-related impacts for the Heritage Triangle Trail Project. Um, and so I'm gonna kind of give you a rundown of existing conditions, what parks will be impacted by the project. Um, I think Steve did a really good job of showing you the, the cross-section, so I won't spend as much time on that, um, but we'll talk about those different elements and how they're impacting parkland, and then walk through the coordination that we've had with DOT thus far. Um, we've worked really closely with them. There's a lot of moving parts with this project, um, impacting park police, cultural resources, natural resources, um, and recreational resources. So um, with that, I will jump into uh, the parks that are associated with the project. Um, if you look at the image on the screen, you'll have um, north is generally um, up. So on the right side of the image or the uh, east side of Norwood Road is Woodlawn Manor Cultural Park. And on the left side of Norwood Road or the west side of the roadway is the Red Door Store Cultural Park. Um, Woodlawn Manor is a park dedicated to the preservation and interpretation of cultural resources. It houses a museum, historic house, and the Underground Railroad experience, which is actually the picture behind you all, um, is depicting that um, you know, significant part of the Woodlawn Manor programming. Uh, and it also houses the Park Police equestrian facilities. So those pastures closest to the roadway are um, the Park Police horsing pastures. Uh, the Red Door Store Cultural Park on the opposite side of the road is a distinctive example of the mid-19th century rural crossroads. Um, that house on the bottom right closest to the intersection with Lay Hill and Ednor is where you'll see the Red Door Country Store. Um, and then behind that is open space. It's a 58-acre managed meadow. Um, when we talk about drainage and, um, you know, we're doing some stormwater management, for this project, um, the drainage is kind of going toward the west, so it's going under Norwood Road and down west toward the Bachelor's Forest East Tributary, which is part of the Northwest Branch Watershed. Next slide. Um, so parkland impacts associated with the implementation of this side path, which um, Parks is very much in support of connecting. Uh, these cultural resources, getting people to parks. Um, Woodlawn Manor, like I said, is a very significant park for us, so getting more people access to that is a great thing. Um, there are impacts associated with that, so we are losing a little bit of frontage to that pasture along Woodlawn Manor Park. Uh, about 64,590 square feet of parkland um, is being pushed back with the um, building of the side path, and at our request, the addition of that uh, double fence um, providing improved safety for the path users and the horses as well, um, separating those two facilities. Uh, 22,180 square feet of proposed parkland impact on the opposite side of the road where stormwater management is going to be implemented. Um, so like I said, that side is a meadow, um, but we are having them build some bios, or we are coordinating with DOT to build some bioswales on that side of the road. Um, we're always in support of stormwater management when um, it makes sense to implement it. Go to the next slide. 
So um, the various elements of this project, we've gone through most of these, but um, I'll just briefly run through them, is the 10-foot wide trail that's going on the Woodlawn Manor side of the property. Um, there are four bioswales going on the Red Door Store side of the property. Um, and you'll also see call-outs on that plan. It might be a little hard to read, but there are two culverts currently running under Norwood Road. Um, as Steve mentioned, this is an SHA road, so they're SHA culverts, but DOT is committing to replacing those culverts as part of the project. They're currently not functional, um, at least not in any real capacity, and there are some flooding issues on this portion of the roadway, so that will hopefully be improved with the replacement of those culverts, and we're coordinating with DOT to ensure that um, as those outfall into the, the meadow, that natural resource is protected. We have a stable outfall that's not going to channelize or cause any erosion, um, and that's part of our uh, mitigation plan with them is to ensure that that outfall design meets park standards. Path lighting uh, is something that Steve brought up. We're coordinating with DOT to make sure that the lighting is continuous off of parkland onto the other portions of the path that have been built. So at the very least, conduit will be installed if the lighting is not secured for the other portion, portions of the path when phase one is being built. Um, Lighting in and of itself is an impact. There's uh, light pollution associated with it and something Parks is concerning itself with. Um, so we've coordinated with DOT to ensure that the fixtures they're installing are going to do what they can to reduce light impacts, such as shielding. Um, they're actually proposing to add additional shielding on their standard light fixtures to prevent lighting spillover into the meadow that would have undue impacts to the natural resources and wildlife there. Um, and they're proposing low wattage LED bulbs as well for that consideration. Uh, as we've mentioned several times, a double fence is going to be placed at um, Park Police's request. We've requested a trail use counter be installed along the pathway as well to help um, inform us, you know, how many people are using this trail um, and connecting to our cultural resources. And then park police have also requested security cameras be installed. So four security cameras are being installed along the frontage, um, especially with the future implementation of lighting, more people being drawn to this area when facilities are closed, uh, just a security consideration. And lastly, um, parks and DOT have agreed that parks will maintain ownership over the land. Um, so instead of granting easements, a memorandum of understanding will outline the various maintenance um, burdens for each agency. Um, and so we're working through that with them. Um, and that's going to be kind of finalized as we move through the park construction permit, permit phase. So with that, I will pass it back to you, Steve, to go over recommendations. Great. Thank you. So, um, you know, after looking at all of these things, the planning staff and park staff um, has come to you with um, some recommendations and some recommended comments to provide to Montgomery County DOT, the applicant. Um, and I can go through them and then we can have a discussion whether the board chooses to make some modifications. Um, the first four comments are actually um, directly from Montgomery Parks and they relate to the park construction permit. So the first one is construction plans must be submitted to Montgomery Parks for review as part of the park construction permit process. Um, to ensure that all work is, is performed in accordance with their um, standards, details, and policies. Um, it's, that's a, this is a pretty standard comment that's provided. The second one is that the final MOU 
um, needs to be agreed and finalized between between the applicant and uh, the commission before the issuance of the park construction permit. Third one is the applicant will continue to coordinate with the commission on the design and the path and other elements, including lighting, user elements, stormwater culverts, and outfalls, bioswells, et cetera. Um, and one thing I think that's worth noting is that, you know, the, the cooperation with this particular applicant and the commission, uh, I think, is pretty outstanding. Um, often at the, the, you know, the facility planning level, maybe at the 10 to 20% phase, and, and often even coordinating with us well beyond 35% towards final design. So we like to be involved. And even once the mandatory referral process is over, um, it's really just more of a courtesy, um, and it's it's a, it's it's a um, a relationship we don't always get with all of our other, other applicants. So we certainly appreciate um, Montgomery County DOT's um, um, cooperative uh, relationship with us. Um, the fourth comment really is mitigation for park trees um, with a six-inch. Um, I always mess this up. DBH uh, diameter at breast height. Di diameter at breast height um, that they need to be replaced. At a particular rate. Uh, moving to comment five um, from from transportation staff, uh, there's de definitely concern that when we design these side path facilities, that they're um, pleasurable experiences. And so, when the side path crosses driveways, uh, we request that the elevation of the side path be kept um, level, and that the driveway move up to meet that side path. Um, and, and the last comment, given the open section cross-section along Norwood and the proximity of the existing utility poles, um, consideration from a Vision Zero perspective should be given to relocating or undergrounding the, these utilities in the future. And this is a comment not to change the project, but really just to the applicant that this is, this is a, um, you know, a shared responsibility for all county government is, is to implement the Vision Zero Action Plan. Um, and this is a concern. It's certainly, tr trying to design roads or, and redesign roads to have a forgiving roadside is is very important, especially in rural rural areas. Um, and those are our comments. And turn it over to you, Mr. Chair. Any questions from commissioners? Yeah, Commissioner or oh, Commissioner no, Hill. No, I just have one simple, uh, easy question. I hope um, the. Um, there are you, you you noted that there are private driveways um, along this uh, proposed area, right? Um, so I want to know to what extent those owners have been uh, contacted. What what their thinking is on this? I mean, how will they be impacted? Um, because you you note them, so I assume that there will be impact to them. Um, so I'd like to know what you know what has happened with um, with those folks. Well, as a fir first answer to that question, as part of this mandatory referral hearing, uh, notices were sent um, to all affected property owners, um, and so certainly they they sh they should be aware that that we are having this hearing, um, and they can have the opportunity to provide public comments. Um, the second one is that a public meeting was held by Montgomery County DOT back in 2021. Um, and I think maybe we could have the applicant um, talk about, uh, I guess, that side of it. Maybe if we can have Dan, Dan Sheridan and Colin Hayward 
uh, come up to the table. That'd be great. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dan Sheridan. I am with Montgomery County Department of Transportation. I'm in the Division of Transportation Engineering and I'm Design Section Chief. So thanks for having us here today. And uh, I have with me also my colleague from uh, RKNK is Colin Hayward. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, to answer the question is, uh, Steve's right, we already reached out to all, we always reach out to all the adjacent property owners. And, um, you know, throughout the whole design process, we are in, and through construction as well, we're in contact with them. Um, and typically, in this case, I believe it's probably true, this, we're talking about a driveway, but we're talking about the driveway that's in the right-of-way, the portion of the driveway that's in the right-of-way. Sometimes, um, uh, to meet these requirements of keeping the path at, you know, the bike or pedestrian level and having the driveway, there is some tiebacks that have to do to uh, grade back in to make a nice, smooth transition for, the, for each of the private users, and we will coordinate with them throughout the whole process. Commissioner Hill. Yeah, a couple questions. One just one just occurred to me, which is at some point uh, you said that the forestry replacement was exempt, and then Park is going to replace some of it. That I'm reading that correctly, but that's a Park motivation, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So there's the forest conservation, um, which is what planning is takes care of and regulates. On, and like Steve had said, um, for this project, there is an exemption for that. Um, but on parkland, there are park trees where we own those trees. Right. Um, and so, and there are, and they're pretty minimal and they're documented in, in the staff report. Um, but for any impact to park trees, we have our own replacement policy um, again. So, this is where you guys are functioning as a landowner of yep. parkland and approving that, yep. um, just that distinction. Um, we try to work, like, if there, if there wasn't an exemption and there were forest conservation requirements for the applicant, um, and it was on parkland as well. Um, we try to work with the applicant to make sure that it doesn't feel like they're getting um, kind of like double dipping, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, but again, they are two separate, you know, there's forest conservation and then there's park trees that are owned by parks. Right. Um, but we try to, you know, like I said, we try to work with the applicant to, to be right. sure, basically be sure that the spirit of both forest conservation and our own conservation are, of our trees is being protected. Um, and, the, you know, at the end of the day, um, from a park's perspective, their resources are being put back whole. An example of that are the cedar trees down by the corner or yes, park trees? Yes, right. Those are, okay. So for this one, it's generally the cedar trees down by the corner that are gonna, going to be impacted. Okay. Um, I, I don't need an explanation of timing here, but I'm, I listened to the, the February 25th um, public meeting. And I was a little surprised that time frames in that meeting uh, led to the conclusion that construction of this would be underway in February of 2022. And that's already well past. And I'm not, again, I'm not asking for an explanation, but I, I would like to posit whether anyone has been back in touch with parties of record to update the expectations on that. And I, if not, I would suggest that maybe that happens because this is a, a based on the testimony of the very people in the, in the meeting gave, word off of that schedule and by a significant quantity. Um, I don't get the double fence. Um, and let me mention why. Uh, you know, it, we're pushing a fence back. Um, I expected to kind of hear that maybe this was a safety consideration of people ending up in the stormwater swale. But doesn't the stormwater swale inhibit people from going up to the, the first fence on the field? And, and why are we accepting the additional fence of a very long run of two fences? Yeah, thanks for the, the 
comment. Um, this was specifically requested by Park Police. I'm not sure the, the swale that's going in would, I, I guess the consideration would be that it wouldn't necessarily prevent people from walking up to the fence yeah. and they'd have direct interface with the horses, um, which would be a safety risk for the person as well as the horses, which we want to keep separate. Um, so Park Police did request that double fence for that reason. Okay, well, I guess maybe the thing to communicate is just a little skepticism because a running board fence, you can step through, you can climb over easily. And if you're not going to be dissuaded by a swale, I don't know that you're going to be dissuaded by a running board fence. Um, so just, uh, I'm not sure what power we have to say anything about that, but I'd like to make that observation. Yeah. Um, also, along the same lines, just as an observation, in that 25th hearing, there was, there was a question about horses using this facility. And the engineering folks answered very appropriately about paving and weight and all that. But I'd like to put a little thumbnail to say I think the most significant argument against that is the safety of bicycles operating next to horses, right? Um, and that, that didn't come up in that, that discussion. Um, uh, I, I, looking on the ground, was trying to figure out how you're going to get around the only alehouse. And then I saw the diagram in the public meeting about how that looks. And it looks great. I kind of wish we had seen that because uh, I, yeah, there's this really big set of right-of-way set aside on the other side, and there's going to be some tree loss. But yeah, it, it'll, it'll work. But it, oh boy, that was a, that threw me at first. Um, what else do I have here? Oh, um, there was a comment here about uh, there. There may be sections of the path that cannot have stormwater, conventional stormwater treatment beside it, and, and I understand that. <laughs> But I was wondering, instead of punting on that entirely, whether the consideration of using pervious pavement in those sections has, has been put on the table at all. And let me expand that for a moment, because then in the hearing, staff mentioned that there's flexible pavement proposed in some of the street, the tree zone areas. And I just wanted to understand, are, are those the same things? Can they be the same things? Is that a possibility that we should suggest? Yeah, I can comment on that. Um, so just first, the flexi-pave versus the porous. FlexiPave is typically what we would use more so to allow flexibility around uh, large tree root systems. So I don't have the specific requirements, but it's more to mitigate the effects they would have on the trees versus right. the pervious, as you pointed out, would be pavement that allows drainage through and can help with those stormwater management requirements. So we did consider that. Um, I believe, and I can go back in my comments, but the biggest concern with the pervious pavement comes with maintenance issues and being able to make sure that the path can be properly maintained with that pervious pavement used. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that all parties agree that that would be the best path going forward, simply because the amount of additional stormwater mitigation you'd get from that pervious pavement wouldn't be particularly large based on what we looked at with the Because right, you're only going to get an infiltration, not quality or quantity treatment, right? Correct. Okay. Um, I, my, my observation on that is anything better than zero is still better than zero. Right? Yeah. And, and again, we did consider it, but I think the maintenance was the key driver there for the, for the purpose. Okay. Um, historic impact. Uh, I just want to understand that for a minute, Mr. Berger. So um, obviously the arch arch archaeological work is done, and that's important for not covering it up. But I assume that the rest of the impact perceived here is kind of U-shed impact. And since we're really talking about something going on the ground except for light poles sticking up, there's really not much interpretation that exists. Right. Well, so, so I mean... Um the, the designated portion of the property is, is in Montgomery County vocabulary is the environmental setting. So um, usually that's the entire parcel, but it's also whatever the county council determines it, it to be. In some cases, it can be shrunk or, or um, you know, limited to the four corners of the building. In this case, 
both of the two park sites were the, the entire parcel. So um, when we evaluate that um, at the county level, we consider the impacts to both built and, and cultural resources. Uh, we do look at view sheds and, and the impact to that and um, the overall the impact to the character of the site. And in this case, you know, the, the 10 foot path plus the buffer plus, you know, the swale um, is a, a really minor change to the character of, of the site. Um, additionally, it's a significant distance from the built resources. So the prominent view sheds of, of those resources in, in Woodlawn, it's the, the manor house and the three-story uh, barn, and the red door store is the store that's right on the corner, um, and the swale is, is some distance to the north. So um, the, the HP review, the historic preservation review, determined that those um, impacts were, were relatively insignificant to the character of, of the site. Um, again, this will be this is, this is going to be required to be reviewed by the Historic Preservation Commission when DOT uh, applies for the Historic Area Work Permit, and the HPC will have an opportunity to, to formally weigh in and, and um, you know, just, just talking about that's, even though the mandatory referral is, is an opportunity for uh, the Planning Board to provide comments and recommendations, the HPC could conceivably say no. Um, however, be, because of the conformance with all of the other various master plans, um, uh, staff is fully anticipating a, a recommendation of approval and, and doesn't expect any hiccups along the way. Okay. Thank you. All right. I will entertain a motion if there is one. Would you like to move? And, and actually, if I could. Um, we, I, I've tried to encourage my team to uh, provide a recommended motion, which you can change and however you'd like, but if we could just advance to that slide. My apologies. So the recommended motion is that the board transmit comments to the mandatory referral applicant, MCDOT, consistent with the comments contained in the planning staff report um, and as modified during board discussion. I move that we do so. All right, we have a move in and second, and second. except we have, a, a, we're not modifying any of the uh, conditions that you had on pages two and uh, three and four of your report. Noted. Okay, uh, we have a motion on the floor. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right, thank you very much. Uh, that concludes uh, our session today. Uh, we are adjourned.